Hi, hello, and welcome to Script Lock, a relaxed discussion about writing and storytelling in video games. I'm your host, Nick Folkman. And I'm Max Folkman. Today, our solo guest is Robin Hunnicky. Robin is a designer and producer. Started out at EA working on The Sims 2, My Sims, and Boom Blocks. After EA, she joined that game company as a producer on Journey and won all of the awards. <laughs> And following that, she joined Tiny Spec and worked on the MMORPG Glitch. And currently, she resides at Phenomena, which she co-founded and is working on Watam and Luna. Is that correct? That is indeed correct. Great. Thank you for coming here. <laughs> Thanks for having me, you guys. So, we'll start out with, how did you get into video games? How did I get into video games? You mean playing video games or making video games? Both. All right. <laughs> so, I'm an old person. Um, I was born in 1973, and when I was a young kid, uh, there were some people in my neighborhood whose parents were cool enough to buy them, like, a ColecoVision. So my very first video game experiences were going to my friend's house and trying to play Pitfall. (laughs) She and I would sit down in front of the television and start playing, and the rule was when you died, you had to hand over the controller. So I'd watch her play for a super long time. And then I get the controller and I die. <laughs> I have to turn it back over and watch her play. So I got really good at watching people play Pitfall. <laughs> that was my first first video game experience. Um, but I I really loved uh, the games and like the immersive environments of you know Zelda and the first you know the first uh, Nintendo games and stuff. We eventually got a Super Nintendo. Um, I remember my mom being addicted to Tetris and being really embarrassed about it. Like she'd we had a guinea pig in this my brother's bedroom where the where the Nintendo was and she pretend she was going in to feed it and then she'd just stay in there and play Tetris. <laughs> so you know, I played games like anybody else. Um and then when I was in seventh grade, I had a friend whose brother had a um a Commodore sixty four and I started playing Mule with her and I got really interested in the idea of playing a game with someone else and the machine at the same time. That was just like, it totally blew my mind. It, it was so much better than sitting and watching someone play <laughs> and then only having that you know nervous feeling, I'm gonna die and then I'm gonna give the controller back. Um, being able to play together and to strategize about what you were doing on the screen and think about how the simulation in, inside the computer was gonna change and how you could trade stuff and who would be the winner, you know, surviving on the colony and stuff. I just love that game and I really, I became kind of obsessed with it. I would think about it when I wasn't there. I'd think about it when I was in school and I'd like have all these strategies about it. So that was, I think, the first time that I really became sort of obsessed or interested in games as systems, you know, was when I was exposed to Mule. So that's my game playing history, I guess I would say. Um, When I got to college, um, I didn't really play games in high school because I was doing a lot of art and uh, making a lot of photographs and did a lot of watercolors and prints and stuff. I was really into sculpture and just really interested in building things. And then when I got to college, um, I wanted to take um, a class to get out of taking calculus. And you could take a a math class called computer programming as a liberal art. So I, I took that class and I started getting interested in computers. And when I was studying computer science, it was still math. So um, I was in the math department, which had this little tiny CS group, and I started managing a lab there. I worked in the computer lab in that building in Ryerson. 
um, at the University of Chicago. This is where I went to college. And uh, I managed a Mac lab and a Next lab and an SGI lab. So um, on the Macs, they had SimCity 2000 or SimCity 3000. I guess it was SimCity 3000. And I got super obsessed with that, too, and started playing it all the time and thinking about it all the time. And there was a guy in the graduate program there that was building a mayor that would play SimCity. So I got really obsessed with that and talk, started talking to him about you know, if I were going to program it to play it, what would I do? And that just sort of one thing led to another, and I ended up, you know, pursuing a graduate career in, in computer science. So it seemed at the time that, um, to me, that games were these things that came from nowhere, and then they were on the computer and you played them, and then I don't know where they... I didn't have this idea that there was, like, a whole industry of people developing them, and it was... It's, it's hard to imagine that now, but especially when I was younger, it's just like they're there. They're like almost like a toy, like it just appears. Yeah. And, um, uh, but as I started doing more research uh, in games as a computer scientist and looking into their, the way they behave, I started meeting people that made them. And it turned out they were all really awesome. <laughs> Everyone that makes video games is amazing. Um, some of my best friends are game developers. I met just tons of really creative, crazy, weird, smart nerds who were also into, you know, Akira and also into, you know, reading weird science fiction and also into other games and into just like, you know, philosophy or computer science. And so I met a lot of sort of tech people that were also creative. And that was really when I realized that I was really struggling to sort of stay engaged just in computer science. Like, as, as a person who only did CS, it was hard for me because I was still creative. I still wanted to build things. I still wanted to make art. Um, and these people were doing both, and they were my people. So eventually I left graduate school, and I went to work with my people, and I went to work on The Sims 2. I was a designer on expansion packs for The Sims 2. It was my very first job. How did you get that job? It was a pretty interesting story, actually. So I was in graduate school, and I was studying AI, um, specifically how to make AI that changes the way a game is played. So d dynamic difficulty adjustment is, is the sort of phrase we use to describe it, DDA. And um, I had been working on robots and doing behavior stacks with them and moved into working in Half-Life because it was easier than working with real robots. Um, Wait, like what kind of robots? Uh, well, at the time, they were Magellan bases. Um, There's like a big, almost like a giant, like a Roomba, but really big and thick with big wheels black. And they had sonar readers on the outside. And so you could basically, you could write programs to ping the sonar to make them navigate spaces by reading off, you know, the reflectance of the sonar. But then you could also, if you wanted to, put a little camera on them. And when I say a little camera, I mean like a camera that's bigger than your fist. Yeah. I mean, they were huge um, and really heavy. And this is in like you know, 1995, 96. Um, and it was really fun working with them, but they were also really slow and they broke all the time. And with the Half-Life agents, which were just little, little dudes that ran around, you could program their AI and then make them do all kinds of stuff. And they never ran into walls because someone had already programmed all that stuff. So I got really into this idea of using the agents in another game to sort of simulate what I was trying to work on my robotics. And the difficulty adjustment kind of came from that. Like, well, oh, hey, what if I actually wrote something on top of the game that would change the way the game behaved and then change the player experience? Would, could I make like Half-Life more appealing to someone who doesn't play shooters if I made it easier to survive? And that ended up just becoming my thesis. It's just, you know, that's how it is in grad school. You're kind of flailing around. You have no idea. And then you have this conversation with someone and it's like, that's it. I'm going to try that. So that's what I was trying. I was trying to build an adjustment system for Half-Life 
um, that would make it possible for someone who wasn't necessarily really good at shooters to enjoy it. Um, and that seemed like a reasonable idea to me at the time. And I went to a conference to present a paper on it. And when I was at the conference, it was in Stanford, um, Will Wright was there and he was talking about The Sims. And I was just blown away. I was like, oh, this is the person that made all these things. Like, I wasn't really like a games otaku type person at that time. And then I was just like, wow, this is amazing. He's so cool. He's the guy. Like, I can actually see him and touch him and talk to him. I'd read like an article about him, but you know, I'd never met him. And so after his talk, I went over and was just like, blah, 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 blah. Like, and what about this? And what about this? And have you thought about this? And have you thought about this? You know, just being a nerd. And it, he was like, you sure sound like a game designer. <laughs> and I was like, is that what you call yourselves? <laughs> you know, like, that's very flattering. Thank you, like, millionaire guy who made awesome games that I love. But um, it sort of just stuck in my brain. Like, well, what if I was a game designer? I mean, right now I'm a computer scientist, and that seems totally absurd to me. And before that, I was an artist, I guess. Um, and before that, I was just a kid, you know? Yeah. That's the most normal thing I've ever been. And probably, honestly, it's all I really still am. But, <laughs> but that was how it happened. He just sort of said, you know, you should consider it, you know, like think about it, you know? So I started talking to people more and more about that. I started going to GDC. And um, at first, as a volunteer, I did a lot of volunteer work. Um, one of the things that I did was I worked on a curriculum guide. So at the time that I was in school now, I'm like, you know, getting. It's getting closer to like, you know, 2000, 1999, 2000, I started going to GDC. I wanted to study games and game design, but there were no programs to do it. There yeah. was nowhere to go. So I started kind of just hanging out with people at these things and bugging them and being like, well, what books do you like to read? What games should I play? And I kind of compiled a bunch of knowledge just from talking to people. And then I realized this is something that you could teach. And so myself... Doug Church, Warren Spector, and Eric Zimmerman actually started working on a curriculum guide that we thought we could distribute to schools if they wanted to teach this. It's like, well, maybe someday there'll be a game program at like some major technical college or something. And, you know, little things had started to pop up, but there wasn't anything really big. So we started writing this big statement about, you know, what we thought people should know when they wanted to become game developers. And it ended up becoming this huge project. We ended up having a couple of summits where people came from other colleges and like came to GDC, academics came to GDC and talked about building programs to teach kids how to make games. So we had a couple of people come from CMU and they were like, we're thinking of starting a program. And a couple of people came from MIT and were like, so are we. And my friend Tracy Fulcherm was like, I just got hired at USC. I, I think I'm starting a game program there. And it was just suddenly like this whole series of things I was interested in was melding together the two coolest sets of people that I knew, people that were making games and people that were studying them. So that conversation of, I worked a lot on that curriculum, um, you know, formatting it, talking about it, going to SIGGRAPH, GDC and other conferences, sort of evangelizing the idea that you could teach games as, a, as an art form, you could teach them as a, as a, as a way of making things, they were, that it was, a, it was a real job, you know, and it was a real thing to study, like an academic area of research. Ludology, narratology, game design, you know, systems design. Um, and, but most importantly for me, that it combined technology and art. That you could do games that were expressive and cool, but that you would be programming and doing systems design, which is, it's like taking the two best parts of your brain and putting them together like chocolate and peanut butter, right? So that was really great. And that conversation led to me meeting a bunch of people at GDC, which led to me meeting the people at EA that eventually put me in the interview loops 
for bunches of different you know different games. Um, I actually did an interview for Medal of Honor. It was such a disaster. <laughs> it was terrible. I still remember that interview. Patrick, if you're out there listening, I'm sorry I pitched you that game. <laughs> you pitched Medal of Honor. I, I pitched I pitched the guy that was running the team this crazy idea based on a on a comic book that I loved. <laughs> what was the comic? What was the pitch? Um, it's about a girl who's a skater who uh, is homeless, but she's also a superhero. And it's going to kill me that I can't remember the name of this. So it's called Street Angel. <laughs> yes, it's called Street Angel. Um, and uh, I had this idea that I wanted to build an open world environment in a very abstract style, um, kind of black and white 2D, the way that the comic is written or drawn. And Street Angel would be in there being homeless. You would experience homelessness being her with her skateboard and her friends that she had on the street. And then occasionally crazy zombies would show up or vampires. I mean, she's always doing, she's a ninja too. So she's fighting all kinds of supernatural creatures, like a rift opens up from outer space and stuff. But you would basically be living as a homeless girl and you would really have to do that. And then there would be these insane breakout actions where suddenly disaster was about to strike and you know, Street Angel would become her ninja form and solve the crime. Then you'd have to go back and be her again. Because in the comic, there's a real... There's a real push and pull between this idea of her being the superhero and her having no family and living alone, like with a cat in an abandoned building, you know. So, yeah, actually, the piece that I have hanging in my house from that it's original page from the comic book, um, Street Angel is hiding in a dumpster because she doesn't want one of the girls she goes to school with to know that she's homeless. So she's crouched in this dumpster, and she's sitting there, and what's funny is that she's in the corner and she sees a bee, like a wasp, walking along the edge of the dumpster and she's incredibly afraid of bees and wasps. She has like a phobia. So she's sitting there in this stinky dumpster trying to hide while her friend, who's actually homeless, is, is outside and the girl is walking past and the bee gets close. She freaks out and like jumps out of the dumpster and is like, ah, you know, and the dumpster flies open and she comes screaming out of it. And this girl that she goes to school with is like, what the hell, you know, what is going on here? And I just, I, I love that page because it was like, she's a superhero and she's a total badass and she can do all this stuff to save the world. But in her reality, she's also really stigmatized, you know, and she's, she's suffering in this way. So I went to this interview <laughs> to the Medal of Honor team in EALA and was like, yeah, you know, I don't have any experience, but I read this comic book and I really want to make a game about it. And the guy was just like, hmm. <laughs> it was like flat face looking at me. And then he was like, well, thanks for your time. <laughs> I was like, okay, great, thanks. And then I was like, well, okay, I guess I'll just be an academic forever. I'll never have a career in games. But eventually what happened was I did interview on The Sims team and uh, my interview was an in-person interview. And uh, it started off just one person and myself in a room. And we got to talking about stuff. And then the next person for the interview chain came in. And then the other person stayed. We started talking, the three of us. And then what ended up happening was as people kept coming in, they just kept staying. So it turned into this, like, whole discussion. Um, and afterwards, they are like, that's never happened. That's the first time that's ever happened. That was amazing. So um, I, uh, I really loved working on that game because the people were my people, like, I had always loved The Sims and had been kind of a, obsessed, like I said, with, with systems-based games. Um, and so SimCity and The Sims were really kind of already dear to my heart as a, as a systems-y thinking nerd. 
But um, the job was also just really great because my job was I was an object designer and I was supposed to think of things to make certain objects be cool. So we had a list of things we were adding to Expansion Pack and be like, okay, well, there's going to be a flower station. And you're, you're in charge of designing the flower station, Robin. Work with these engineers, the sound guy, the animators and stuff. And so you'd sit down and you'd play the game and you'd start imagining this system that you were going to be contributing to and how you would insert these like little, almost like Lego-like pieces into the system. And you'd play it, design it, you'd send off the design and then it'd come back a few weeks later as like a kind of a half built thing with some animations and some sounds. And then you just keep doing that, do that for a few weeks and pretty soon you had something you could put in the game that you had made with uh, like two or three other people and then all the other systems in The Sims would interact with it. So it was really nice. It was like just this really delicious way of interacting with the system that you don't get to do as a player. You know, you don't get to make your own objects and stick them in there, at least not yet. Yeah. So, um, in, in, you know, one of the things I have tried to do over the course of my career, I think, is kind of recreate that experience for players of being able to build something or create something and then play with it inside of a system that they're already experienced with because it's just really nice. And it gives you the sense of agency and creativity that, um, that you just can't get from a fixed, closed, kind of more narrative game. Um, and yeah, so I worked on these, um, the, one of the objects I worked on, my expansion pack was called Open for Business, and <laughs> Sims could run their own businesses out of their homes in my expansion pack. Um, and uh, so I was a junior designer, so th most of the content had been designed when I got there, but they gave me this flower station and were like, okay, design it. And so we designed um, uh, several different station uh, activities, and they start off with your skill level being low, and as it gets higher, you can create new things, and so um, the beginning you can just like get one flower in like a in like a jar. That's like the thing that you that you produce after working at it for a long time, and then they get better and better. And at the end, there's this beautiful bouquet of snapdragons. They're like gorgeous, and they release this white cloud of mist that's like a motive enhancer. They were called the snapdragons of motive goodness, I think was <laughs> what we called them. And if you put them on a table next to a sim, the sim was sitting next to him, they would just breathe in this ether from the flowers and they would become really zen and like really chill and just their their hunger motive would go down and they would uh you know or up i guess and they, they would become like just kind of really comfortable and everything would just kind of go to like you know i'm cool like i don't really need anything right now which is not a state that sims are normally in like yeah. sims are almost always freaking out about yeah. i gotta go to the bathroom or i need to get to work or like oh, i need to use this object to get myself happier so that was pretty cool and that was all you well, that that was yeah, that was the design was you know let's make something that zens out the the sim you know that would be a really cool gift to give to someone, but it, it has an area effect and it wears off and stuff like that. Um, but then we were like, okay, well the other thing that they told me was like, what makes objects funny is when they have funny failures. So one out of ten times, say on the on the flower station, there should be a fail. So the object should come out either broken or ugly or weird, you know. So I ended up, the, the fail state for the snapdragons of mode of goodness were the snapdragons of, like, disaster, basically. <laughs> so they were the, the, the evil form of this flower. And it was the same exact model, but then out of it came this, like, noxious green cloud. <laughs> and if you put a sim next to those, their motives would drop and drop and drop until, if you, if you did it long enough, they would be starving, like... <laughs> filthy, <laughs> really depressed, and really exhausted all at once. Uh, they would just be like, have to go to the bathroom so bad, I'm stinky, I'm really unhappy. And so you could do this thing where you would put a table 
and a chair right next to a kitchen sink and stove and then you would put the sim in this chair next to the strap the snapdragons of evil and their motives would drop and drop and drop and then at some point they would just stand up out of the chair and like freak out go over to the kitchen start cooking because they were starving then they'd walk two steps down to the sink strip and start taking a sponge bath but because they were so freaked out the cooking was like all bonked and it would set on fire and then they would get set on fire and then they would die in flames on the floor in their kitchen and it was like totally repeatable. You could do this over and over and over. And eventually what would happen is they'd be naked on the floor like like dead and then death would show up and like sweep them away. It was so great. And I loved it. I just loved that job because I would play the game so much. I would spend so much time just sitting with the game and trying to think of ways to to break it or do stuff. And when I did that as a player, it felt like I was getting over on the game. But when I did it as a designer, it was like, I'm making play for these people like me out there who are gonna do these things, you know? Were your bosses cool with that? Yeah, actually everybody on The Sims was really focused on this idea of the funny failures play expression. And in fact, I think within EA, that team was always kind of carrying the banner of player expression. Um, one of the coolest things that they did on The Sims was they would bring people that were real fans from The Sims uh, portal webpage, which we had. Um, they'd bring them in, and they would play the game before it was released, like play an expansion pack before it was released, and then they would make commercials using the content that they made. So they would give them the right to basically make make the ads for the new expansion pack. Like, you decide. You're, you're the most creative players. You create the content, and then we would put those in commercials, and we'd show The Sim doing whatever they were doing and the little narrative and then we would show the creator and they'd be like I'm a you know I'm a sim I'm a simmer you know I'm I'm a person who loves the sims and I do this I'm a creator and it really was true you know it was not bullshit it was really true yeah. um and the people that worked on the sims were very passionate about that um there's always people that want to make money you know and squeeze more out of the expansion packs like put less objects in make them come out more quickly or only do the things that were cheap. And on the expansion pack team in particular, people were fierce about protecting the the sort of rights of the players and being like, you know, these we're making these for our most dedicated players. They're totally going to see through it if we half-ass it, you know. And also most of the ideas for those expansion packs came off the forums. So it was a really great environment. There were definitely times when the financial constraints of trying to make games tried to impact The Sims division, and I think over time they've they've really faced a lot of pushback, you know, because it's not really a game, quote-unquote, or it's, you know, not our core audience. When, when really, when you look at The Sims, it's sold so yeah. much, and it's worldwide. It's a huge game. When I ask my kids in my classes at, at Santa Cruz now, like, how many of you have played The Sims? That's like almost all the hands go up. Everyone's played it, so... It's an interesting, interesting trade-off. But the, the best thing about that job, honestly, was that I had no direct reports. It was just me. It was just me reporting upward. And I, I went to work, and I did my work, and then I went home. Nobody to manage, no budget to worry about, and it was really bliss. I should have never, ever taken a promotion. <laughs> but you took one for My Sims? I did, yeah. Like about six months after I had been there, they promoted me to lead designer on a new game on a new platform. That seems like it'd be really cool. It seems like it. <laughs> and My Sims is a Wii game. It was a Wii game, yeah, but back then it was called The Revolution. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
and that we were like, we're working on the revolution. That sounded so cool. And then they changed it to the we, and we had to go around me like, we're working on the we. <laughs> it, was, yeah, it was a lot of that, a lot of that. Yeah, you know, looking back, I think it was actually an amazing opportunity for me because I learned so much, but real learning is painful, and I definitely was not prepared to be leading a team of, oh, gosh, it was like 70 people finally when the game shipped, Whoa. I think. Yeah. In the division, we would um, we would roll people from one project onto another, and so I had a really blissful period where it was about 20 people, almost all new to the Sims division. We were making prototypes and kind of experiencing what the game could be. Um, my core idea for the game was that in the Sims, the the feedback loop and the narrative that you tell yourself as you play is that you're helping your Sim become a happy person, right? But that happiness is tied to how much money they make, which is tied to how happy they are when they go to work, which is tied to what objects they use. So it's really, you use objects that you have that you can afford to make your sim happy enough that they get a promotion so you get more money, so you can buy better objects, so you can make your sim more happy, so you can get more money, so you can buy better objects, and it just keeps going until the point that it reaches, you can't actually maintain all the objects that you have because there's too many and they have fail states and then you're kind of in this weird plate spinning game, which is what we would call it, where you're trying to manage all the different demands of your really successful life, right? And that's one story. Um, but I really wanted to tell a different story. So with my Sims, uh, you start off in a, a little tiny village where everyone's pretty much moved away. It's kind of like a rural Japanese village, this is kind of the idea, although it takes place in somewhere in Sims land. Yeah. Um, and your job is to go around and forage for, 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 for blocks, basically. And with those blocks, you can build objects to draw new people to the town. So you'll run into, like, say, the chef, and he's like, hey, I really want to come here and start a pizzeria, but I don't have an oven. So you go out and you get a bunch of blocks, which are really, you, you get objects, and then you can go into create mode and, like, make these objects into blocks. And you can use the objects to, um, to uh, paint them, basically. So you find... Uh, foods and uh, other objects in the environment, and then you use those to kind of decorate this, these objects that you make in, in, the, in the create mode. But he's like, make me a stove. You go around, you find the necessary ingredients, you make the stove, and then you give it to him, and he's like, fantastic, now you'll make a pizza shop. And then like suddenly, boop, you get a building. And then you can construct the little building and customize it and put it down in your space. And my whole goal was to take the cycle of buying things to make yourself happy, to make more money to buy things, and be saying instead, create stuff to bring people to town who will make things that allow you to create more things, that bring people to town that will allow you to make more things. So it was really about getting stuff to give it away and get more people in your town instead of hoarding stuff so that you could just have more stuff. Yeah. You know? And that to me was a really awesome opportunity to sort of be able to think through the system and change it a little bit and kind of explore for myself what kind of games do I want to see you know like when I was driving here across town there's that uh, there's a graffiti that says you know make the things that you wish existed and like that's what I wanted to do so that was my first attempt but it was also really hard because after that period of about you know I would say three or four months where it was just the you know 15 20 people working on it 50 people came on from another PC project and suddenly they were like so many people on the project, 11 producers, like an entire engineering team, an entire animation team. And they were all people that I didn't know. So as a designer and a sensitive person who wanted to communicate these ideas, suddenly I had to be really efficient with my time and manage my communications and, you know, go into these huge meetings where there were reviews and all this stuff and be like at the top of my game. And I just didn't have the skills yet. So I learned, I learned the hard way by failing a lot, you know. We played The Sims when we were kids, 
and you describing the somewhat sinister implications of just about buying and capitalism. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Did the team knew that? Do they know that? Did they try to change that or? I think, well, so when Will designed the game, he wanted to make some commentary on the way we live. And if you look at the, especially the first Sims game, The Sims, and you read the catalog copy, uh, which Sean Beatty wrote a lot of it, um, it's pretty dark, you know, especially the copy for like the furniture and stuff. Um, There's just some really, some very strong social commentary in the game. Yeah, I think people definitely knew. And, you know, also, Sims are able to have same-sex relationships. They're able to do things that at the time were extremely controversial. Yeah. Because, you know, it's part of that commentary of like, well, if you really want to create your own world, you should be able to do what you want with the people. You should be able to make a pool and then remove the ladder and watch the person drown. Like, that. that's something you should be able to do because it's your world too, you know? And um, they had four quadrants of players, players that were interested in sort of exploring the system, players that were interested in exploring the building. That's me. I'm a creator, a builder. People that were interested in in building narratives, like telling stories, and people that were interested in just doing whatever was at the edge of torturing the Sims, you know, basically just... No doors. Exactly. Like, you know, people that wanted to create mischief, you know, and cheat the game and do weird stuff. We did that for a while. Yeah. I did too. I mean, it's a really, it's really fun to be transgressive in the system because there's actually feedback for when you do it. Yeah. And this is another, it was a great lesson to learn working on those games is that if you don't put that feedback in, someone is clever enough to think of a funny scenario and try to implement it and there's nothing there at the end, that's a huge disappointment for them. So if you can, you should really try to put yourself in the shoes of as many, you know, you know, sort of different edge cases as you can and try to build out the system so that when that, that one fan gets to that edge of that system and then they find that the Snapdragons actually will make this person set themselves on fire and die in their own kitchen naked, you know, that for them, that's a moment of glee. Yeah. <laughs> Was there a pushback when you wanted to change the success model? Yes, and also, um, this was a big one, I wanted to get rid of the bathroom motive in the game. I did not think that The Sims should have to manage whether or not they had to pee in a casual game for the Wii. And, and this is the thing. It was like, is it is it a Sims game if they don't Wii? You know? <laughs> um, there was a lot of discussion about that. Should they have to pee? Should they have to manage their bathroom motive? And the game was actually targeted not just at American audiences, but Japanese audiences as well, Asian audiences. We went over to Japan a bunch and did a bunch of uh, focus groups with girls over there and uh, tried to kind of reach out to that audience and be like, okay, how do we get to the Sims franchise to be successful in Japan where it had never really taken off? We made these chibi-style characters. Ami Toyanaga, who is the, the art director on the project, a really great, great character designer um, and lovely person. Uh, we made a lot of homages to things like they're a little bit square kind of like the Katamari people and they had these big eyes and all this other stuff and we really did a lot to sort of translate what we thought were interesting concepts into that culture but the bathroom motive was definitely one that it just kept coming up as like "Mm, I don't understand why why do I have to think about them taking a pee that's weird so I did fight to have that taken out of the game the bathroom motive was removed and actually the whole motive system kind of wasn't the focus of the games it was much more about building and spending time doing things and creating for other people. However, there was also, um, I was really influenced by Animal Crossing and I really loved playing Animal Crossing with my partner at the time. Um, We were long distance and I would get stuff in the game and then I'd go to their game and I'd give it to them and then come back, you know, and I just really loved the idea of 
collecting and then making like a you know a little like care package and going over to his world and dropping it off so um I, what i had designed this my sims to be like was that not only would you be building out your own little village with its own little groups of people but other people's villages would be near you and you could send people there so there were um like four or five different types of people in, in the game. There were like goth kids and nerd kids and like um, sporty, like kind of like outdoorsy, you know, extroverts and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so they were basically what they converted to was styles. There were different styles of dress and behavior. So if you wanted to have a whole like cute town that was like filled with cute characters and cute buildings and cute shops and, and then maybe you had a couple goths that you liked because you thought goths were also cute. You could send them to your friend's town that was mostly goth stuff and video games, and then they would be happy, and then they'd come back, and they'd still be happy because they were nearby someplace through their friend network that would recharge their batteries, and then they'd come back and they'd be excited. Um, but what ended up happening was we built the game for a long time, and then right before we were getting ready to start working on that feature, we found out that Nintendo wasn't going to enable it until Animal Crossing came out for the Wii. Whoa. So it, it was like one of those things where they decided to hold the feature because it wasn't ready, and we really wanted to build the game to be social, and then suddenly there wasn't anything there. So, And this was one of the hard lessons I learned. Like I planned the game to have a feature that would allow people to interact, and that would create a dynamic between players, and it disappeared. And there wasn't anything to take its place, and we were really close to shipping. So the game ended up becoming really grindy. The franchise did really well, and they published, oh, I don't know, maybe five different My Sims games, like My Sims Racers, My Sims Flyers. There were all these games they made with, with Emmy's amazing character style. But the, the social gameplay thing never really made it in, and they ended up becoming more a look and a style of light play for Sims that they could stamp onto other types of gameplay, which is really cool. And I'm yeah. really glad that it, that it, ha that it happened. Um, and it sold a lot of units. They, a lot of My Sims DS especially was really popular on the DS. This is a sidetrack for a brief second, but because you talked about playing Animal Crossing influenced My Sims, did Minecraft influence Journey? Or was Journey too late? Yeah, no, Journey was, was, was well along by then. Um, no, I would say, if anything, I, I sort of... I really love the idea of building things, and so Minecraft wasn't so much an inspiration as it was like, this is exactly the kind of thing that we should have done with My Sims. Like, we wanted to build digital Legos that kids could play with, but when you put something on a platform, like, you, you know, you put it on the Wii or you put it on the PlayStation or whatever, it really does truncate the audience. Like, it's awesome to build a game and see it on shelves in a store. Like when I, when my sim shipped, I went to GameStop and I saw it on the shelf with the art that we picked and all the, it was just a mind blown. I was so excited. It was a peak experience for me and I'll never forget it. Like just never ever in a million years where I forget like see, even just seeing the, the pre-order, you know, boxes with the fake slips in them with the name of the game on it. I was like, that's it, that's it, it's really happening. You know, that was so awesome. But anything that's available on the PC can just go, it can, it's explosive, you know? If you build something that's like available on the Android phone, it's the same thing, you know? And now iPhone too, as the platforms get broader and broader, you can just do a lot more with it. And I think one of, one of the things that's so cool about Minecraft is that anybody can, can do it. Yeah. You know, it's not that hard to set up a server and then just like, 
I don't know, build Rivendell or whatever you want to do, you know? Hey, guess what? It's the Millennium Falcon and also a giant Pokemon or whatever, you know? We're going to do it and then you're going to climb inside and it'll be a house in there and there'll be a staircase and, and, and if you keep going down, there's a lake under there. Like, it's just amazing, you know? It's really, really cool. And as a kid who um, played jealously with my neighbor's Legos, you know, I, I think that that accessibility to creativity and the broadness of it so amazing like especially if you just turn it off turn off all the challenges and you're just playing you know that's I always cheat the sims and play with infinite money so I oh, can oh yes I would yeah, yeah. yeah. But what's the point of earning right you know exactly <laughs> I, want, I want to build like my perfect house exactly you'd have everything yeah I want to have all the things and then you're like agonizing over the wallpaper choices and stuff right so for me it it, it just resonated with me immediately like wow Marcus really did something awesome with this like it was a really sharp clear, focused attempt at getting at that joy, you know? Um, and uh, I think all the games I've ever worked on, that's been a real a real central part of, of them, trying to get at that joy that I felt when I was playing Mule or that I felt when I was putting objects into The Sims as a designer, you know, that... Really, I mean, game design is, is just... It, it's life design, it's, it's systems, it's, it's society. I mean, rules create behavior in people when they're run on the software of people, right? Games are no different than civic codes and laws. You know, we run laws on the on the platform of our society and then we see the behavior that we get from that, right? The outcome, the aesthetic outcome of people generally obeying traffic laws is that there are fewer accidents, right? But the aesthetic outcome of us allowing people to use phones in their cars is that there are more, you know? So eventually maybe there'll be a law that stops that, you know? Maybe cars will just, when they turn on, shut off your phone or assume the phone so that you can't hurt yourself while you're driving with your car. That, that's, not a, that's not an unreasonable expectation, right? It's, it's not the utopia where everyone does the right thing all the time. It's the practical reality of what you have to design to make society work. And I think that's how games are. They're, they're systems that run on the software of us, you know? And what made my sim so compelling to me as a design, even though I wasn't able to execute against it, was this idea that you would be building and then sharing, and that the sharing would create a dynamic between us that was really valuable. And Minecraft really does allow you to do that. It allows you all to go to a place and build something amazing together, which is just so cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we already started talking about Journey, but between my sims and Journey, mm -hmm. you were working on, you worked on Bloom Blocks as a producer. Yes. So this was actually, and for people that are curious about game careers and stuff, not all careers are a straight line, and my de mine definitely was not. Um, Especially in video games. No, video games, it's you got to be adaptable. But um, so after the My Sims thing, um, I was pretty bummed out. I have to admit, like I lo I loved, I loved the idea of the game, but I didn't do a super great job at building the thing that I saw in my head. And I don't think I was a really great communicator on the team sometimes. I think I definitely suffered from, you know, being like, oh, I'll just make a list. I'll do that later. Don't worry about it. And then, you know, you can't do everything. Um, and that's something that I think we all struggle with, especially creative people. But after that, I went to um, someone inside the organization and I was like, I don't know if that's really what I should do. And they were like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm cut out for it. Like, maybe I'm not really a game designer. And they're like, you just, you got to learn by failing. Like, that's just how it is. But you know what you could do is you could... Uh, kind of go, go across and up a little bit and take on a production job because it turned out that at EA, the production track was your way to becoming an executive producer. And it was actually, as an executive producer, you would have the most control over a game, but you would also have a lot of knowledge about how the game 
was made internally, like as in what the budgets were, what the forecasts were, that kind of stuff. And so you would need to manage both things. So the best way to do that was not to go from designer to executive producer, but from designer to producer to executive producer. And so they suggested that I consider taking a low-level production job because I'd done the low-level design job and then I got promoted maybe slightly too quickly. And then, you know, now I um, took a production job that would be like, you know, kind of just like a low-level production job. So I ended up working on... Boom Blocks, I came down here to interview for it, and then I moved down to Los Angeles from San Francisco to EALA, and I worked with Steven Spielberg on the Boom Blocks series. I was um, a UI producer on the first one, so that meant that I was responsible for managing the process and the people and the assets that went into creating the screen, messaging, you know, everything from the little cursor, the design of the little cursor, all the way through what we ended up shipping as a create mode in the second one. That was all stuff that I worked on. And um, I ended up working really closely with a couple of engineers and sound designer named, uh, my sound designer on that game uh, was Brad Foch. And uh, he's actually now the sound designer of Phenomena. So I made some really good friends there. And really what I did every day was I'd play the game, I'd look at it and I'd think, will people get this? Is this clear? What are the barriers? And then I go and I'd walk around and talk to people about it and I'd try to get buy-in on certain kinds of changes. And then I would propose those changes to the producer. Uh, and then if they made it up the rung, eventually maybe they get proposed to Spielberg when he visited. And he would come probably tw every twice a month, like every two weeks, he'd show up at, at EALA. He was working on another project there at the time as well. And uh, we were kind of a small baby project, and then he had a big project there. So after he was done with the meetings on the big project, he would come and uh, work with us. So the, the big project was called LMNO, and the little project was called PQRS. <laughs> that, was the, that was the code name for Boomblocks. And, uh, and, you know, it was really also an amazing learning opportunity for me because now I did have people that were kind of not reporting to me, but reporting through me. I was taking notice of other people's work and kind of telling the producer, okay, well, this is behind schedule or this is on schedule or this is kind of broken, but I think this is how we would fix it. Um, and uh, over time, I just kind of got to see, like, okay, this is how the sausage gets made. In my other job, I was trying to communicate outward um, what the design should be or could be. And in this job, I was kind of looking at the bottom of the, you know, the process of all the things that were getting made and trying to get an intuitive sense of where things were and what needed to get changed and what should stay the same, which was a really different job. Um, and it was fascinating. And of course, I mean, it was, in, I mean, it was awe-inspiring to see Steven Spielberg, like, just, like, have so many great ideas about the game and so, I mean, sometimes I wished that we had, like, three times the budget so we could have implemented all the stuff that he wanted because he had really great ideas. But. Spielberg's a good game designer? He is. I actually think he's just a really great um, creative, always on time, no ego, listen to anybody, kind, fair, and, like, genuinely excited about games. Like kind of the the best of all possible cases, um, and you know, in the in the few meetings, you know, where where I would be sitting there, you know, taking notes and stuff, and, you know, he would he would make suggestions or somebody else would make suggestions. He just you you just you could just see that that he really cared, that there was no 
there was no winning or losing in the conversation. It was just about what was going to be best for the game. And I really took that to heart. Like, yeah. I think I just, it's sort of, it was like a lightning bolt into my brain. Like, wow, on your last project, you were not this cool. <laughs> Maybe someday you'll be a billionaire like Steven Spielberg. <laughs> no wonder he's so successful because he really did. He executed against a vision um, that was collaborative, but he never, he never, um, he never lorded it over other people. You know what his position was, and I, I really, there were, a, there were a lot of lessons I learned in that project. It was like a huge helping of humble pie, and I really needed it. <laughs> what was he like? LMNO was what he was pushing narrative or trying to push narrative in video games. What was yes. he pushing with boom blocks? Like, what was his main thing he wanted to do? The number one thing was this idea that there's this joyful feeling you feel when you knock stuff down. And wouldn't it be so cool to be able to do that and not have to pick up the blocks? That was the thing he would say all the time. And also, um, a lot of the characters in the game, like, oh, I'm trying to think. I can't remember them, but there were a lot of characters in the game, basically, that were uh, funny names. So they'd be like a bulldog character with a cowboy hat or this or that. And it turned out that they were the character names of stories his father had made up when he was telling him stories at night before he went to sleep. So he was actually remembering, as we were making the game, these funny character names and stories his dad would tell him. And he was doing it for his kids. He was making the game so he could play this game with his kids. And um, it was really cool to be able to kind of get the notes from him in the meetings and then go off and design the character names and stuff. And I did a lot of that stuff. I managed, I managed a lot of the, that kind of aspect of the, of, the, of the production process of just like collecting that information and arranging it in a way that was good. And it was just really cool. Like he could get to his own childhood through this, through this process. Um, yeah, it was really, it was really great. And, and I loved, I really loved being in LA um, a lot more than I thought I would especially li living in Venice. I loved being on the, on the west side. And then um, just made like some really long-term lifetime friends while, while being down here. And then afterwards, you moved to that game company. I did. So, so then as a producer, so since we still are hazy on, because producer can be like a nebulous definition, especially in film, but also video games too. And also no one knows what they do. Or this, <laughs> we have a not a great idea. People who don't work in the industry don't really know what a producer does. Yeah. Okay. Well, so <laughs> um, the number one thing that a producer does is every morning they ask, what is the commander's intent? What is the thing that needs to get done today? Like if we were in a battle and we needed to take that hill and that was our number one objective, how are we going to take that hill today? Like how are we going to get there? There's so many things that go on on a project, especially when they get large. Like on Boomblocks, we had 30 people on the first one and like 16 on the second. And on My Sims, there were 70 people, right? So um, when you have that many people working together at the same time, you need to create a sense of narrative around the process itself. And then you need to communicate that narrative to everyone so that everyone knows what's going on. On a really small team, the narrative kind of is obvious to everybody, and it's a little weird to have someone going like, hey guys, okay, so, uh, you know, Glenn's working on this, and Lauren's working, I mean, like, they sit across from each other, there's only five people on the team, like, they don't need you to do that. But as a, as a team scales, somebody needs to be deciding where we're headed and creating that narrative so people look up from their desk, they're like, oh, just a little bit to the left, okay, fine. And they, they can keep moving without having to, like, completely stop and think about where in the process are we, what's happening, they can focus on their own part of it and be excellent at that without worrying about things not getting done somewhere down the road and then having a block. And ideally what you're doing is you're always removing blockers from other people's workflows so that like in the morning I show up, 
I'm doing my stuff and then the afternoon I check it in and then I can walk over to the designer's desk and say, hey, I checked in that code you wanted me to check in for the flower station, go ahead and give it a shot, see if the effects are timed correctly now and if you're getting the right mode of changes and if you're not, here's the little tuner that I made for you, check it out, make it, you know, make it better and then I'll, I'll encode those changes and then it'll be set. That's how you want it to work. And then the designer's like, cool, I didn't have anything to do today. I'll totally do that. <laughs> and they start doing it. And then it, like within, say, six hours or 10 hours or 25 hours, however long it takes them to, you know, however many days it takes them to figure out what they want, they can go back to the, to the programmer's desk and say, okay, uh, I did it. Here's the thing that I need. And the producer's job is to make sure that there isn't something sitting on that artist or designer or programmer to stop them from doing the other thing in the chain. At the same time, there's no way that you can actually do that. Like, you can't stop chaos. People's kids get sick, or they blow a tire on their way to work, or they get the stomach flu, or, you know, um, the work that you planned out to do a feature turns out to be three times as much work because it turns out there was some rotten piece of code down at the bottom of this, of this you know, this sort of stack that isn't going to support the changes that you need because it was written six years ago for the first Sims and now it's corrupted and bad and old, crufty code that nobody should ever see. It's like the, the, the termite-ridden fence, you know, that you never want to lean anything on. It's a really, really bad place to go. Somebody's got to fix it. <laughs> like, someone's got to take time off and fix it. Otherwise, all the other things will go on top of it will just crumble, right? And so you can't, as a producer, you have to constantly say to people, okay, so this is the schedule and this is where we're headed. And this is what you're doing this week, and this is how it's going to happen. And, oh, I heard, I heard you. You're not into that idea anymore. Or, oh, I heard you. You think that this is a better way to do it. That's great. We'll have a meeting. I'll schedule that meeting. You're always doing that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you're like one level ahead of that or above it, looking out over the whole vista. And you're like, oh, crap, that's a cliff. <laughs> and there is a giant shark that's coming towards us and like this is a, just a huge mudslide waiting to happen if there's any rain at all it's going to wash out the whole plane you know you're always kind of looking further down the road for the things that no one could possibly predict but that may be likely may even be unlikely but if they happen they'd be devastating like getting canceled or having someone die or literally like having someone on your team who's super senior have a have a parent come down with alzheimer's and now they got to leave you know when those things happen the producer is the person that stops, silently cries, cries some more, and then says, you know what, it was a great plan, but it's not going to happen that way. And if you don't have somebody like that on your team, it can be very difficult, even on a tiny team, like said the producer at a startup is the CEO, which is what I am now. If you don't have somebody like that, when inevitably shit hits the fan, the individual contributors on the project it's, it's not their job to, to maintain a narrative across a production. It's not their job to create continuity, and they can't. In fact, they don't have the skills, nor should they. They're not paid to do it. And if you have a bunch of individual contributors all kind of slogging it out on a project, when the stress gets high and there's no, no person to kind of create that smooth narrative for them and assure them that it's not going to be all for, for naught, people can really have emotional breakdowns, they can have communication breakdowns, it can be fights and, you know, d disagreements over small things can become, you know, really ragey fights and, you know, stresses break free because everybody feels uncertainty. And so I think the number one job of the producer is to say, what is the commander's intent? And then when you cannot possibly do that anymore because of some random change to go, all right, 
we are gonna enjoy the process of getting there, even though it's gonna be painful, even though we're not gonna know what we're doing. It's likely that the game won't even sell anything. You know, we're still gonna we're still gonna keep going and to, to create that narrative again from scratch as long as it takes, as many times as it takes to get it done. And I think the worst thing a producer can do, um, and really anyone in leadership on a creative project that involves other people is give up, step away, and like be resigned to something like just sucking, like, oh yeah, you know, we'll ship it, but it won't be that good. You know, that's a terrible, terrible thing to do. And the other terrible thing to do as a producer is to create a narrative of, of, um, of failure. Like, well, it would have been a great game, but too bad this happened and too bad that happened. Everybody struggles with that, you know? You, you always, when you're looking back in time and like, well, I could have done it this, this way and it's too bad I didn't make that decision. But you have to move past that at some point and create the narrative of, it was bound to happen that one of the many things we were counting on didn't come true. That actress decided not to, not to take the script after all or that location got flooded by a terrible hurricane or, you know, we really did want to use this DP, but it just turns out that it's not going to work out. Their schedule is really jammed. They got a better offer, like, et cetera, et cetera. And we just can't make it happen on this project. So if you if you create the narrative on that film of like, well, I guess the lighting's going to suck, you know, or I guess it'll just be terrible camera angles because we couldn't get the guy that we wanted. That's that's not going to help anybody, right? Your job is to is to be the inspiration for that cohesive narrative. It's exhausting, and it takes a very certain kind of person, but I think it's critical. And... In many ways, that job is the job of design. It's designing the process, designing the narrative of the experience, coping with change, and really taking an eye at, okay, well, this is what the art director wants, this is what the designer wants, this is what you know the audio director wants. This is the narrative we can create. This is the, this is the context we're in. This is how much we can get done without killing ourselves. Um, and so this is what it's going to have to be. And then creating that plan and saying, all right, you know, nobody agrees what the end of journey should be, for example. There's many of you on the team now. You've been working on it for three years. It's going to be a heated debate, but we're going to have that debate and we're going to close it down and we're going to get this thing shipped and everyone's going to love it because it's an amazing experience. Right now, we hate each other. We're <laughs> really mad that it's not done yet and we're exhausted. And it seems like it's a total fool's errand and like we're tilting at windmills and stuff. But let's just have this one conversation right now. Just like shut everything else out. Let's have this one conversation. Let's go get lunch, sit outside. And we won't yell, but we will speak honestly and truthfully about what we think is the goal, what needs to be done. And if we can all get behind each other's passion and investment, we'll find the right ending, we'll find the right thing, you know? It won't come from any one of us. It will come from all of us having that conversation together. That's what a really good producer does, I think. They take the uncertainty and they turn it into concreteness. They take the pain and the struggle of creative discussion, especially when it comes to things like narrative and experience flow, and they turn it into something that's enjoyable for someone else. With Journey, on reading interviews and stuff. And wait, first, when did you come into the project? It was already going when you came on? Um, so I started talking to Kelly and Genova about Journey when I got back from a trip. So I was finishing Boom Blocks, and I was in a relationship with someone else that worked at EA, and we went on a hiking trip in Bhutan where I summited a 14,000 and then a 16,000, 16, peak in the Himalayas. And on that trip, 
while I was on the trip, I was going over the mountain, I realized that my relationship really wasn't fulfilling me or him, that I wasn't really that happy anymore working on games at EA, that I felt like, especially with small titles like Boomblocks and My Sims, where the teams were really trying to do new things, it was hard to push against the system. And I started thinking like, all right, maybe I should look somewhere else. Like maybe I should start interviewing. And I got back and I kind of broke up with my boyfriend and then started talking to people about breaking up with EA. Uh, and it was a crazy time. And right around the time that I had made this decision, Genova asked me out for coffee and we went out and he showed me the concept for Journey. And he was like, yeah, so I want to make this game about a pilgrimage to a mountain. <laughs> when I was, at the end, you'll feel this awe and wonder towards the unknown. And I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> I just, I just did, did that. that. <laughs> that sounds perfect. I totally love this idea. And at the time, it was going to be a multiplayer game, as in, like, maybe hundreds of people could play at once and all these ideas. And I started thinking about it, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I had a couple of other interviews, but it was just like... I actually interviewed with, um, with Bungie. Uh, I was t talking to my friend uh, Chris there about um, going to, um, to work on Destiny. And they were like, it's going to have all this magic and there'll be crafting systems and we really need a girl on the team to kind of like soften it up, you know, and it'll be good because you'll have a different perspective because it's like a bunch of guys. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I could do that. You know, that would be cool. And I was getting kind of into that idea. And then after I talked to Genova, it's like, wow, that this sounds way cooler. Like, yeah. no, no offense, you know, like, no offense. I'm sure, I'm sure working on Destiny was amazing. And I mean, it's a huge game, but like, Journey was like, it just sounded so cool. And I loved Flower. I was really a fan. And like, I had been hanging out with them, like, gone to the ship party and like, you know, did some testing and stuff. And I just thought they were really great. So Kelly was also a friend. Um, and she and I had a separate conversation. Because the interview was actually, like, initially the, the plan was that they wanted me to be the, the lead designer on the game. Whoa. And I was like, lead designer? That sounds cool. I was like, but wait, I just, I did that before, and I don't know that I was really good at it. And, I, and also, like, isn't Genova kind of the lead designer? Like, I, that seems weird, you know? And he was like, no, I'm the creative director. And I was like, oh, okay. So then I went and I talked to everybody, and it was like, oh, that's the situation. You don't need a lead designer, you need a producer. You need an executive producer, someone who will do the thing that I just described, create the narrative, build shared vision, and drive us in the right direction. When we're all rowing, I'll be the one at the front with a scope and, and another paddle, kind of half looking and half paddling. Like, that'll be my job. So we decided we would give that a try. And when I joined the team, um, right before I started, we did a play test with the very first 2D prototype of the game, and it had been in development for two months. And we had a bunch of people come to the offices where um, TGC was. They were in a closet, basically, on the Sony Santa Monica campus. Um, and it was like a really small room with five people in it. And then um, we put people in different rooms and had them play the game together, but they didn't know they were playing together. And then brought them together. It was a four-player game at that time. And it was amazing. Tracy Fullerton was one of the testers. I think maybe Richard LaMarsha and a couple of other people. And it was just watching them talk about their little people, which at the time they were like little tanks with a direction arrow on them. They were nothing. Just even the very bare bones prototype with four players had so much capacity and was so exciting uh, to me as a designer. And I thought, okay, this is definitely it. And so 
when I started, we were just making the transition from that prototype to uh, the PlayStation. And within the first month I was there, we had our first build up on the PlayStation. This little weird dude, we called it the dude, ninja dude, running. And it was kind of ran like a sim with its arms up in the air and stuff. It was a pretty funny character. And just building the world for scale and starting to look at colors and thinking about how it was gonna feel. And at that time, it was myself, Genova and Kelly, John and Nick, and then Rick and Martin. And they had just hired Matt, the, uh, the art director. He had just come on to work a little bit on Flower. So that was us. And then we started adding people to the team and building the game. And then three years later, we shipped it. <laughs> and you've talked a lot about how you don't want to view, you want to use, view your players as humans and not just data points. And empathy was a big part of making journey, making, instilling empathy in players. So how do you design, when it's such a core part of the game, how do you design for empathy and, like, emotion? So on Journey in particular, it was really hard because when you put people into a position where they can compete with one another, they will. And we found there were a lot of places where, despite our best efforts as designers, we were still creating this invisible need to compare to each other, basically, to compare yourself to the other player. And so the first thing that we did was after the playtest that I just described, we cut it down to two players because four players meant that there would be two against one or three against one sometimes or two, two against two. People would be kind of trying to drive the game in a certain direction, like, we should go over here. No, we should go over here. And we had designed all these puzzles where you had to have all four players in this one place in order to move forward. And it, it made people, like, I think Tracy was, was the first player to sort of say this, just she felt like, I want to explore the world on my own, and I don't want to feel pressured by the rest of the group who was like, wants to speed run it. You know, I'm a, she's like, I'm a narrative exploration person. I want to see all the things. And right now, I feel like I have to keep up with everybody, and that makes me feel sad. Like, I don't want to feel dejected about wanting to do what I do naturally. So if I were playing this, I would play it by myself. I wouldn't play it with other people. So we got down to the place where we realized if it was just two people, we could create more empathy because it would be you alone and them alone. It would be I and thou. And this was, you know, it revealed itself to us through the playtests. And then... After that, we did a bunch of design around movement mechanics and collection mechanics and puzzle mechanics, trying to get people to interact with one another. And we found actually that the number one thing that made people compete was the sense of accomplishment when they move the narrative forward. So that if you remove the need to solve together and you created just a companionship experience, where I could solve all the puzzles in the game and you could just be by my side, or I could play it by myself and never see you and still succeed, then the only way for me to interact with you was, was, was to be interested in being with you. If it was no longer that I could see you as a tool to my success, you know, you know that I needed for my own agency you to succeed or to do something, then suddenly you're just with me, you know? It's like when you have a child, like... The child is totally dependent on you. They're not an agent of your success. You don't see your own child as like a, a thing that, that makes you successful. You see it as a thing that needs you, and you become its caretaker, and you have genuine empathy for its experience. And over time, as it becomes an adult, that relationship changes. 
but your feelings about them are really grounded in the sense of togetherness that comes from seeing them as something that, that needs you so completely, but that is also going to eventually become independent, right? There's this change over time with a child. When we, we, when we engage in a gameplay session with each other and we're going through a series of challenges, what is the relationship over time? Either we're succeeding or we're failing. And like, if, if, I don't, if I don't see you as needing me necessarily, but I need you, do I feel angry when you don't do the right thing? Do I feel like you're not really that, that nice of a person because you didn't do exactly what I thought? Those are the things that happen when you're a teenager and you become independent, right? You go through that phase of like, wait a minute, no, I'm gonna do it my own way, right? And I think a lot of games, they, they stay in that teenager range because you're, you're always aware of the system around you and how you want to sort of survive in it. But if you're playing, say, a multiplayer shooter and you need other members of your team to succeed, if they don't succeed, it's, it's a very different experience, you know? It's, it's, very, it's, very, um, it's very much grounded in, in a feeling of either you succeed or I'm disappointed. Either we win or we lose. And with Journey, we didn't want to create a parental relationship but we also didn't want to create sort of teenager relationship where there was a lot of resentment. And, you know, we wanted to create this relationship of peers, colleagues, equals. Like, it's, it's hard to describe, right? It's hard to describe what that really means. But when you play, even if you play Left 4 Dead, you know, um, you're not really peers when you're playing it. You know what I'm saying? You're not really collaborating in that way. There's something really unique about the way that you collaborate when you play Journey. And so we had to have a lot of conversation about what does it really mean? Like, what does it mean to, to be in a relationship with someone and to not need them, but to want to help them, but for them to not be a child to your parent or for you not to be a child to their parent? What does it mean to be mutually engaged, but not dependent, not codependent? What is a healthy way to play through this game with another person that won't create the sense of competition or the sense of lack or a sense of a feeling out of control of the other person's actions. And that was a really hard thing to discover. And honestly, most of the stuff that we designed and put in the game initially, we cut. There were a lot of puzzle designs and a lot of ways of interacting that the more we looked at them and the more we experienced them while playing with each other, the less the less it felt like we were really getting to that sense of, of awe towards the unknown or a genuine connection between two human players. So on the process itself, what I would do is I would, every week or two when, when we were in a good times and, and sometimes once a month when we were in the bad times when the build was broken a lot, I would give everybody a piece of paper and on it it would say lover or fighter or neutral. And then we would play the game together, all 10, 12 of us, all connected. We wouldn't know who we were connecting with. We would each connect with one person in the group, and we would sit down, and we would play Journey, start to finish. And there were times when we couldn't play a certain level, you'd have to just skip it, you know. But I would ask people to play as their character, like play as a lover, love this person, follow them around, be with them, you know, try to support them, you know, sing at them, <laughs> that kind of thing. Or if you were a fighter, try to try to grief this person. Like try to try to make them, you know, screwed up. Try to try to hurt them, you know. Be that jerk. Um, and if you were neutral, just like play the game like you didn't even care. Just like whatever. If there's another person there, just don't care. And by playing the game in those roles and then trying to guess who we had connected with, 
and then try to guess what their roles were, we realized that you could actually create a game where griefing looks like love. Like in Journey, if you just go around after somebody and you call them all the time, the way that it sounds and the way that it looks and the way that the music and everything else is building up around it, it's just kind of pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not, it doesn't end up being grief. It ends up being affection or attention, which is positively framed by the entire experience. And so those were the sorts of things that I did on the project to, to get at the question of what is the feeling that we're trying to create? What is a true colleague? What is a true pairing? What is a relationship between two equals? in an environment where there is a drama, where there is pushback, where there will be pain. How do I make these two people want to stay together? You know, what's a good marriage? So you have also talked about our culture sort of obsessed gameplay-wise with a sense of immediacy and like immediate feedback. Yeah. And you want, like Journey as a gamer, it wants you to invest in it and slow down. How do you get someone to calm down themselves enough where they don't need to get constant dopamine. Yeah, that was actually, that was a huge discussion on Journey and it is on Luna as well, which is the name, the game I'm working on now at Phenomena. And uh, I think, I just actually indicated here, I gave a talk about, about it, um, specifically the idea of agency that players currently feel, yeah, which is one of getting things um, and being rewarded for being smart and figuring it out and getting the power-ups and the bling, bling, blings and stuff versus um, being rewarded for spending time contemplating something, looking. Um, Walden, which is was here at Indicade, Tracy's game, very much about you know this idea of contemplative play. And I also think Journey and Luna are in that same area, um, as is... Um, Proteus and a couple of other games that have been developed that are more experiential. I tend to try and work in the space that's more more gamey and more mechanical, as in like it's a system, but it allows for that contemplation and openness. What what I call it is white space. Um, I like the idea of white space in games, which is places where you can be doing something and you don't feel compelled to do it. You can just walk to the top of a sand dune and journey and just pan the camera around listen to the wind and watch the sun like on the sand, see the clouds in the sky, and maybe you'll see another character somewhere off in the distance or maybe you won't, but you can just be there and it feels good. When we were first working on Journey, I had a couple of features on my list as the producer that I really wanted. And one of them was for the world to be dynamic. I really wanted Journey to be a world that changed as you played it. I wanted the sands to shift. I wanted there to be weather and time of day really, really badly. Like the Sims part of me when I first heard the design idea was awesome. We're going to make this procedural world and there'll be weather and then you'll be traveling through it and people will get paired up and it'll be so cool because each journey will be different because it'll be a different world. Um, and I fought for that feature for like a year. <laughs> and every time we'd have a meeting talking about the landscape, I'd be like, and then when it, when we build the landscape generation thing, and John and Nick would just be like, oh, it's going to be so hard. We don't have any, we don't have time, and you don't have enough engineers to do that, and you got to pick your features, Rob, and that's going to be too much. And I was like, no, 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 I really, we really got to do it, really got to do it. And over the course of working on the game, what I realized is that we didn't need to do it because... The difference in each journey is the person that you play with or whether you play with someone at all. And um, at our very first offsite, we were talking about, which is like maybe three months after I started, even two months after we started, we went to the Pismo Dunes north of 
LA and we camped out there on the dunes one night and spent time in there running around, feeling the sand, running in it, like experiencing it as a thing uh, so that we could get our heads wrapped around the idea of what, what we really wanted the game to be. And um, I was saying to the team, like, what it sounds to me like is that it'll be like a museum. When you open a museum, there's this moment when all the paintings are new and there's all these people and, you know, it's like an it's like, okay, so-and-so's show is up at the, at the MoMA, let's all go, and everyone goes. And then over time, let's say a few of those paintings are moved into the permanent collection, and then they're there hanging in the permanent collection. It's no longer fanfare, you know? There's no longer, like, huge crowds, and there isn't a gift shop dedicated to that artist. It's just, like, you know, a couple of really nice Monets or whatever. It's like a fantastic uh, Jasper Johns just sitting there, right? And when you go back to the museum and you look at that painting, you remember the opening, you remember the artist's, like, body of work but you're just focused on that one thing it still has meaning to you and going back over and over that meaning matures and you change and over time it, it doesn't have to be the world's most popular painting if it's if it meant something to you at the opening it means something to you now and it'll mean something to you when you see it on you know the roll of film that you took 10 years from now um, or when you take your child to see it or your grandchild right it'll mean something to you and that journey was going to become a place that was like that. It was going to be a ruin that had just been discovered and so there'd be tons of tourists and tons of people there and then over time it would become less and less populous, less and less visited. It would become a relic that people visit occasionally and you can go back there and be like, oh yeah, I remember when we first discovered this place. It's great. still, still really beautiful. A little lonely now, like not really seeing anybody, but it would still really feel like this place, you know? And so when you're, when you're building something for people to experience and you want them to slow down, I think you need to create that sense of placeness, that sense of connection with the place or with the characters or with the actions you do so that when they go back to it, it puts them in a mind state. It puts them in a place that's like a little bit transformative. But to get them to that place in the, in the, at the beginning of the experience, you need to cut them away from the world. And so in Journey, there's this sound that you hear, and then there's the cello sound of the solo, and then as it gets louder, you hear, you know, and you wake up, and then you're there in the desert, and there's nothing except wind, right? So there's this feeling that's happening when you're in the start screen and then when you move in we have this sound and then it's more sound and then it's more sound and then it turns into noise and then it's silent and that's when you start walking and in that silence the sound that you hear is the sound of your footsteps on the sand and then in that silence you hear the ruffle of the sort of fabric of your character and then you start looking around and seeing the sparkles and then you get up to the crest of the hill and you hear the cue and you see the title. And then you look out and you see the vista. And it's like, all oh, right, I'm in a place now, right? So we took you out of where you were, your shitty job or your stupid mom or whatever it is that's like bugging you, the dumb budget that you haven't finished for work or whatever it is. And um, you were like, what is this thing? And now you're like, wow, this is a place. It's not just a system. It's not like I'm going to like get rewards or ping, 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 ping. It's a place. So I think that that notion of, of presence is, is the thing that knocks you out of 
achievement orientation, it knocks you out of your own experience and it puts you in a place that you can be contemplative. And you can do it in a number of ways. You could do it with a really long tunnel, right? So there's one of my favorite books um, of all time, which I read every few years, is The Timeless Way of Building by Christopher Alexander. And he does, he's the sort of father of architectural pattern languages. He, he designed a bunch of patterns for architecture in the 70s and did a lot of work looking at naturally occurring patterns in buildings of people all around the world. And one of my favorite examples that he gives is the example of the entryway, which is when you go to a sacred place, you walk in, there's a gate, you walk in the gate, and there's a corridor. And you walk along the corridor, and then there's a gate. And you go in the gate, and there's a vestibule. And you go in the vestibule, and there's a landing area. And then you walk down the landing area to where the nave or sacred place is, and by the time you're there, you are so far away from the street that you were on, right? You are just, you are not there. You have, you've moved from the street through a garden to a gateway to a covered space into the foyer of a church, long past the pews and all the stained glass and all the sounds and smells of the incense and the candles and all the things that are there. By the time you get to the front and genuflect in front of the nave, you are transformed. And the space that you're in is transformed. You're in a different time and a different place. And like churches themselves are in many ways kind of a, they're a platform for making you be in a transformative place interiorly. And sacred places in general, temples, when you go to Monument Valley, you know, and you see these amazing structures, if you walk in Bryce Canyon, you know, when you see these things, they take away so much of the stimulus of life. They're singular in their formation and they... They transform the light and the sound of everything in a way that is really, really altering to you as a person. It alters your experience, your, your software changes with it. So if you want to make a game that slows people down, you need to do those kinds of transformative acts. You need to build the equivalent of a hallway and a gate and then the pews and the stained glass and then at, one, at that one place, the pristine moment where you're collected. And it takes time, not just because you have to think about what's appropriate for your game, how do you get the person into that place, but then like most, most things that you try at first will somehow inadvertently distract the player or add noise. My favorite example from Journey is just that when you used to start the game, you, you woke up and you could just immediately stand up and just do whatever and people would go, oh cool, and they'd, they'd look around, they'd tilt, the, they'd tilt the controller and then they'd walk right off the back of the level. <laughs> right away from the mountain. And it was like for months and months and months this is happening. And then Genova had this brilliant idea. When you come in and you hear the, the rising sound and the themes and and then the character sits up, you see the character sitting and then you see on the screen that you should tilt the controller. And you tilt the controller and it causes you to get a panorama, but the character can't actually stand up and walk until you're facing the mountain. So you look, you get a sense of this huge space and you're hearing the sound, stand up. Oh, I'm supposed to walk that way. And it totally works. It's amazing. But it was so hard to see, you know? And I don't, that probably sounds crazy out there. Like I don't, I, it's so hard to describe how simple changes like that 
when you're in it, when you're working on the story, when you're thinking about the experience and you're trying to get the narrative together, you cannot see them. It's like they're invisible. And they're right there in front of you, but it's like they just have this slight shade that you, you can't quite see it. I've been reading, actually, I was reading The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin um, last week. And uh, there's a moment in the narrative where they're walking across a, an ice flow, like a, a glacier, and there's a whiteout. And because there's a whiteout, there's no shadows. So they can't see on the ice where there's a crevice. And it's craggy, broken, what they call, uh, you know, kind of like a dark ice or um, sick ice. It's ill. It's, it's, it's not a good place to be. Because if you're walking and you misstep, you know, you and the, your companion and your sled and everything are just going to go down into a crevice. But because they can't see shadows, one of the two of them is just paralyzed, cannot take a step forward. Even with a stick and poking, the fear that there is a shadow that they can't see that's going to take their life at the end of this really long journey they've been on is so intense that they have to stop for the day and they have to wait three days for the snow to go away so that the shadow comes back. And there's a beautiful piece in that moment of the book where she talks about, you know, light is the left hand of darkness and darkness the right hand of light and that you need shadows to move forward, right? There's something about that sense of needing the negative to create the positive. You need the non-movement of that moment to create the, the virtue of going forward in the player. And there are so many places where when you're developing, you need the negative of the thing that you need to move forward before you can see it. And you can't see the shadow. For some reason, there's just no light coming in at the right angle and you can't see the contour of the decision that you're supposed to make. And then suddenly one day, one of you sees it and the game moves forward and it feels like the right decision. And you look back and you're like, it was always right there in front of us. It just, we just needed to tilt our head slightly and we, just, we would have seen it if we'd been looking. But you were looking. You were looking so hard you couldn't see it. And I, I don't, I've never been able to, to say that succinctly. You know, I've never been able to describe that feeling of like the blindness of wanting something so much that you can't see it. But I felt that a lot on Journey and I feel it all the time on Luna. Like I know what I want, but I'm just not sure exactly what will get everybody there. Like maybe it'll get one person there or maybe it'll get half the people there, but how does it get everybody there? You know, that's really, that's the crux of the problem, I think. So with Journey, the, the dominant story is the one that the player experiences not as like a, what you've designed for them is what they make out of their experience. But I read that you did, you, you spent time as the whole team making up the whole history of the world oh, yeah. and designing everything. And you experience that through the cutscenes. Like you know, you get a sense of what the history of the world was. Right. Was there ever a conversation where it would just be straight playable gameplay throughout the whole game and you don't have those cutscenes? Uh, yeah, there was a lot of argument about what, what, what the story should be and then how it should be delivered. And I think um, on any game that has a strong narrative component, whether that's a backstory that is revealed through play or a feeling that one wants to drive the player through, like, a, like an experience curve, which becomes the narrative, um, which Journey had both, um, there's always going to be a lot of opinions on the team about how to do it right. Um, we did a really bad job with the narrative for a very long time. Um, the narrative of Journey, the backstory of Journey, is not an unfamiliar one to anyone who reads a lot of science fiction. It's very similar to, like, uh, Ian Banks's Fearsome Engine. Um, there are a lot of 
sci-fi stories about a world where there was a civilization and then they got greedy and they destroyed themselves and now you're the one of the last people on the planet or you're one of the people that survived or you're someone who's discovered the planet like an alien, you know, and you, you, you uncover this ancient civilization and possibly an ancient evil. Like, these are not new ideas, right? Um, and when you read the story of Journey, I think if you were to go back and read, like, Genova's very first pitch for what the narrative was and then Matt helped him rework it a couple times and then I started working on it and then eventually the whole team was really invested in reworking it. If you were to look at it over time, you would see two things that are true. One is we told less and less. Because it was really, we were really, there were some points where it was like, yeah, if we, if we, if we have that in, it's just going to be like beating you over the head with this idea of like, you know, this greedy, evil civilization. And I don't want us to feel like the ancestors were, were terrible people. I don't want us to dislike them. I want us to have empathy with them because I, I want to create that feeling of empathy in every aspect of the game. Let's not demonize the prior civilization such that you can't empathize with them because then that's going to take away from the total ambiance of the experience, right? It's going to remove that emotion from the, from the ether. Um, so we told less and less. And also we told it more and more simply. So there was a time when we had these animated cutscenes and you would interact with the ancestor and then you would see something play out and we had these flashes, these images, and they were... It was just... I can remember playtests where we would be up at the Sony offices with... We had a room where we could sit and watch on five screens or six screens people playing. We'd see their feed and then we'd see a, a, a monitor of them while they're playing. And during the cutscenes, people would just like look at the camera and just be like, really? What? You know, <laughs> or they'd check their phones. That was a big one. Like during the cutscenes, immediately they'd put the controller down and check their phone. And then the, the cutscene would be going by and they'd be like, you're not seeing the story. And then they'd pick up the controller and go again. And during those play tests, yes, there were people on the team that said, you know what? Fuck these. We should cut them. <laughs> like, we should get rid of this stuff. It is so bad and it's so ham fisted and it's such a bad way to tell a story. Like, Nobody likes it, just cut it. And I feel like you can't just cut it. We have to do something. There needs to be a reward. So my feeling was, and I think Genova also, really felt like there needed to be a way to understand what had happened. And Matt was really trying to come up with the right way to do it. And he did so many versions and worked so hard on it. And it got to the point where it really did feel like, wow, we're just going to screw this up with a bad series of images or a bad story. And Everybody was depressed, and Matt stayed one weekend and came up with this idea of making a scroll that you would see the scroll over time in these pictures. And then when that idea came in, then suddenly people started brainstorming, like, oh, well, what if you can see the scroll over time? And then, like, at some point, Chris had an idea where you could, you could have, see the, the journey of the character as it went through the scroll. You could see the other person, and then, you know, we started batting that around and then we had that meeting where we all went to lunch and everyone said what they thought and and then suddenly it, it worked and it it really was way late in the game it was way late it was like maybe three months before we shipped that we really knew it was working it was so <laughs> close so close to the edge and even then we were developing that story as you went and when you get to the fifth level and you see the scroll all around you in the top of the temple and you see each character going through i don't think a lot of people really get that i don't think that what that they get that what they're doing is unlocking the whole story that they've had and then seeing it but it creates the sense of imminent importance that there's something coming after the door when you leave the temple and go out to the mountain 
it's so different when you leave that orange warm place and you go into the cold blue and you've seen this lighting up and this huge ancestors appeared and you get this really important sense of like now this is a mission you've got to do this important mission it doesn't really matter if you understood all the glyphs that you found in the game and you understood the little narrative that's playing out on that sort of comic book scroll of the ancestors basically extracting too much value from their world and driving the world underground through this terrible sandstorm that came from war. You, you don't need to understand that. You can just get the sense that there's an ancient narrative that's trying to be pieced together and that you will find out what it really means when you get to the end. Of course, then you get to the end and you find out that, that what it really means is that you made it to the end, that there is an end. And then on the other side, maybe everything's okay. Maybe you're forgiven. Maybe you get to heaven. Maybe you, you forgive yourself. You know, maybe you find your partner. Maybe you experience the dream of an alternate reality. Whatever it is that you see when you go through the light, that's you. It's your choice. And then you forget about the story of journey and what it was and who it was because it doesn't matter anymore. And the next time you go through, you're really on the path. I think the second time you play journey is so awesome because you, you have suddenly realized that it's a karmic cycle and that you're being born again and that their players are coming through again and that everything is part of the cycle of just, it's a, it's a remembrance. It's like almost like a, it's a ritual of remembering what the world was and also being okay with it. You know, it's a cycle of growth and then death. It's a cycle of, of tragedy and forgiveness. And it can be whatever you want it to be. Um, and that moment of just realizing, wow, I can go back through this whole world knowing now where I'm really going. And then you just think, wouldn't it be so cool if in real life you could do that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it'd be so awesome. Like, please let reincarnation be true. And please let me come back in almost exactly the same way as I am now so that I can truly appreciate my life and see that there is no point, that it's just a thing, that we're just moving, you know? When we were practicing talking about Journey with the press people at Sony before we first announced it at E3, the woman that we worked with, um, who was really great, actually, was asking us over and over these questions about religion and did we believe in God and, like, was the game about Jesus and this kind of stuff. And I was like, what are you asking these questions for? And she's like, well, have you played your own game? She was like, it's really, it seems like it's about religion. And I was like, well, it, in a way it is, but it's more about spirituality and really no game journalist is going to ask us about that. <laughs> like, Have you read modern game yeah, journalism? Like, we're not going to get these questions. Like, I wish we would. Yeah. But th these are questions we would get on NPR. Like, we're not, we're not going to get these questions. And, you know, I was surprised, honestly. I was pleasantly surprised when the game came out. And, like, Keith at The Guardian and, you know, people at The New York Times and The Onion and stuff, they asked those questions. They did. And they wrote about the game that way. And that was really awesome to me that, like... We did make something that made people think about this sort of spiritual questions, these deeper questions, philosophical questions, which for me have been a lifelong thing. Like, I mean, I, I wouldn't have become an AI person if I didn't want to know why are we smart and how do we feel and like, what is a machine? Like, we made these things. Can they tell us stories? Can we, can we make them smart? Like, how, how, how is it relevant that we've created these strange not people that we spend all of our time with? You know, I'm really, really fascinated by that. It's amazing, like, how many people 
spend how many minutes every day now staring at their phone? Like there's, we are with the machine now so much. It's such a huge influence on us. And like, I'm fascinated by those kinds of questions and to be able to make a game that, that even sort of scratch the surface of this question of what is technological progress? Like what, what is the future and what is the past? Like, are we really gonna, are we really gonna get there? <laughs> are we getting to the place we wanna get to or are we getting to the place that the people in Journey got to? You know, it's a, it's a really, it's a really strange time now. It's interesting to wonder, you know, and maybe we'll look back at Journey and say, it's funny that we were making that game right when everyone was having this huge debate about global warming and we were in the midst of coping with this newly sentient kind of machine stuff that we were building that was becoming self-driving cars and, you know, machines that didn't need us. Like, maybe we will look back at something like this and see it as a text, you know, on those issues. Or maybe people will just be like, eh, no one plays video games anymore. Everyone's just in their headsets now. Yeah. Everyone's plugged into the Matrix. Or we'll all be dead. <laughs> yeah, or it will be baked. <laughs> Sorry, we'll all be dust. Yeah, who knows? Keeping it light on the podcast. That's yeah. right. You're creative. You're you're the lead on Luna. I'm the creative director on Luna. Yeah. Yeah. And also the CEO of the company. <laughs> Sorry. First of all, could you give our listeners the pitch of what Luna is? Oh well. Um, so I haven't talked much about Luna because, like Journey, it is a narrative game, and we kept it pretty quiet for a long time with Journey, and I think we'll do that with Luna. But um, the high-level story is that Luna is a uh, an interactive fable or fairy tale. Um, it's a puzzle-based exploration game where you discover the pieces of a world, and then you build that world, and then you watch a series of things happen on the stage that you build. And... The story starts uh, with a bird and an owl and the moon. The bird is born and feels different from the other birds in the nest. And when it grows old enough to go off and make its own nest, it gets called away from that activity by an owl who is cooing at the moon, basically calling to the moon in love with the moon. And the bird gets convinced by this love to swallow the last piece of the waning moon. And when that happens, there's a terrible storm which blows the bird off course into a place of not being, not remembering, and being lost. And so it's really a story about where the moon comes from, why does the moon wax and wane in the sky, but it's also a story about transformation through mistakes. You know, like we were saying earlier, you know, true learning is pain. You know, the Dalai Lama says, who are you to deprive other people of their pain? <laughs> when you're saying, oh, I just don't want my friend to date that person because I can see the breakup ahead of time. You know what? Just let them learn. You know, that's what it's like, right? We've all done things. And later we looked back and said, hmm, not really quite sure why I made that mistake. He made it because he needed to make it to learn. And so that's kind of what the game is about. And what I'm trying to get at with it is that we make a lot of games about revenge and getting over the past by either making it not true or forgetting it or you know going back and hurting the people that hurt us there's a lot of narratives in games and also in film about about that and that idea of getting revenge on the past or somehow erasing the past or making it fair somehow justice this kind of thing that's not really how life works you know even in situations in which justice is doled out it never makes up for the pain you can't put someone in jail long enough to bring your, your loved one back from a 
a drunk driving crash. It just doesn't happen that way. And I think we need to start having a conversation in society and with our kids and with our spouses and our friends about the mistakes we do make and to celebrate those mistakes for what they are because we're making a lot of them right now and um, and we're all going to be on this planet together. You know, we're all in the same boat. And so I want the media that I engage with to reflect a more nuanced understanding of learning and growth and maturity and where it comes from. And that's what Luna is about. The, like, committing to the mistakes you make, do you think that's one of the reasons why roguelikes have gotten popular? Because people not being able to save scum their way and have like have to commit to whatever decision, how many times they've died and keep moving forward through that. I do think it's actually one of the reasons why roguelikes are so compelling. Yeah. I think people, we live in a world now where you can kind of, you can, you know, you can delete that drunk tweet, you know, yeah. you can, you can edit out those pictures that you posted to Facebook. We are vomiting out a lot of stuff and like oversharing and, and constantly performing our lives. But we also have to some extent, rewind buttons. And then in other places we don't. And the pain of not being able to edit yourself completely, but the promise that you might be able to is something I think we're learning to deal with as a society. You know, maybe you overshared a little too much. Maybe you maybe you said something that you really shouldn't have said and now you're paying the price for it and you're getting mobbed on Twitter or somebody's decided that they're going to tell your boss about some photos you posted, you know, that's a reality that we live in now and the idea of a system that you have to play just as it is, however punishing it is, and get better at, but won't be memorizable. I mean, that is life. Life is that way. You just, you never know. I was driving here and I was thinking, you know, I love having a rental car in Los Angeles, but it would suck if I had an accident. And I just started thinking about like all the things that would happen if I got in an accident in my rental car. Cause you know, why not freak yourself out about something that is not happening? I don't know. I was just thinking like people in LA drive kind of crazy and you know, the odds are not low. And then I just started thinking like what a shit show it would be if I had to deal with that, you know, <laughs> it'd be so crazy, but you know, it's a possibility. And like I was saying earlier, you know, maybe because I am a producer and like a creative director, a designer, you know, a person who thinks about systems, all the things that I am, maybe I'm more predisposed to those kinds of thoughts. But I do think a lot about, about how coping with systems and the inevitability of chaos is actually, I mean, that's a challenge of life. That's what it means to be human. And in this answer you just talked about with uh, Luna, where you want a nuanced discussion about those topics. Why do you think those kinds of discussions aren't more prevalent in the industry? Because we do have very intelligent people who at least outwardly say that they're interested in such topics, but the end product doesn't always reflect that. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I gave a talk at GDC last year, maybe the year before. It was the year before, where they asked me to give a rant at the Indie Developers Rant session and I'm not a ranter in case you didn't guess I'm not the kind of person that gets up there and is like there's sexism there's racism like I'm mad about that stuff I, I fucking hate it but getting up on stage and being angry is just not my style and so I started thinking like okay, what is the opposite of a rant that's actually really critical of our industry and my talk is five minutes of me saying really slowly why don't we make games about love and desire, and lust, and sex, intimacy, and empathy. Like, why are we not 
making games about those things because we're really good at making games about shooting people in the face. And we're super good at making games about getting revenge on some dude that raped your wife and killed your kids and took your dog and stuffed it down your kid's face. You know, we are so good at making these revenge narratives, this revenge porn, this justice porn, whatever you want to call it. Like this feeling of like in, enacting your own power over a world that you have to set straight those are all the narratives that we're so good at telling. And it's not just games. It's television and film as well. You know, you know, the narratives that are exposed in books tend to be a little bit less like that for some reason. I think we, we still have maintained in literature some independence from this sort of overarching theme of our time in terms of the philosophical, which is that we have the right to engage as we wish, you know, and it's our world and it's all for us, you know. But why aren't we making games about the thing that we all crave, which is to be loved and cared for and close with other people? Like, there are very few people on this planet who, for chemical reasons or whatever, don't desire that. Um, but even they flourish when they can achieve it in the way that makes them most comfortable. Even the most sort of on-the-spectrum person who's really suffering because they have really, really strong autistic issues, when they are able to connect with other people, they flourish. It might not be the way that we connect, but it's a way of connecting, and you see it over and over in every story about that. Like, we, we need connection, and yet we're somehow we're just not making games about it. It's like we're not, we're not confronting that issue. And my question to the audience was, why aren't you trying to talk about these things? Don't you want them? Don't you want to be loved and cuddled and don't you want to touch someone don't you want to be touched don't we don't we want romance don't we i mean we don't even do romance really right now in games and that's just like i'm talking you know girl meets girl <laughs> we don't even do that it's like know? no romantic comedy game no and if you look at something like gone home you know which is girl meets girl it's really you know it really is romance on some level but the way we do it, you know, the way we achieve it is so often about playing on your fears and like making it a sad thing, making it a difficult thing. And like what I love about Luxurious Superbia and Gone Home is that they're trying to push us in that direction, you know, um, one step at a time. And so I, I think I had a long conversation with someone about this recently. Okay, if we wanted to make a game that was about sex, there was an app about sex, and it was just about it's a gameful, playful way to get your partner to do more sexy stuff that you like. If we wanted to build that, how would we build it? And we started talking about it, brainstorming, having all these ideas. And it very rapidly becomes like, well, but what if somebody uses the app that's not 18? And then what if they take a picture? And then are you liable? And then what if this and this? And it, it really is because as a society, we are prudes. We are super prudish and super litigious, and we are not into those things. We'd rather have violent, angry things than sexy, lovey things. We would rather have calculating, strategic things than close, intimate things. And so I build close, intimate things and creative things that try to create connection because I think those are things that we're not doing, but I'm doing it on the edge towards play, fun, rewarding creative experiences, collecting things. I still have to use those tools 
because the further you move away from them, the closer you get into what we call art. And art is something that, hey, how can you convince a publisher that it would sell, you know? Not, not like it's easy to convince a publisher to sell Luna or Watam or anything like that. I'm not even saying that. Um, we all have our struggles, and I am, I am, no, I am no different from anyone else. But, um, but when you push away towards that edge, I think you get, you get away from what people know. And what we know is that we're comfortable being angry with each other. We're not comfortable being in love with each other. And it's also, as you've explained over this podcast, like it's very hard to do it in a gameplay sense to try to explore those kinds of things. Well, how do you know? We haven't done it. When you were trying to explore empathy and emotion, like you're just like, how can we make the player feel this way? And then all the different ways you did that. Like not a lot of companies have that kind of time or we just give up after. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, do we not have that time? Like, okay, here's the deal. We're going to take, say, $120 million, and we're going to take 300 people. 200 of them are going to be in Europe, and then another 100 are going to be in China. We're going to build a huge open world filled with giant monsters that you kill. Okay. How much is that going to cost? Oh, it's like $120 bucks. Okay, how long is that going to take? Eh, like six years. Okay, let's do that. And then we do that. Now let's take those same people <laughs> and break them up into 10 teams and then have them each work on something that is about connection or love or desire or honestly just sex. Like, let's do that. And we're going to spend the same money, but we're going to go across all those different ideas. And one of them is going to be huge because it's just going to hit it, right? We're going to invest in 10 games but one of them is going to nail it. And then the other ones, who cares? Because you know why? Because trying to do it pushes the art form forward. And if we don't do it, well, it becomes comic books. Yeah. It becomes slash fiction. It becomes whatever it is. It becomes this very, very narrow thing that we're already making for people that we already know is buying it. And that's the death of a medium. You know, as an industry, it makes sense to make reasonable bets on a wide variety of things to discover the next thing that hasn't been discovered. The Sims is a perfect example. It wasn't that expensive to make, but it has made billions of dollars. It has made so much money, and everybody thought it was going to be a failure. Who wants to play a dollhouse game? It should not have made money. It should not have made money. I'm sure there were people that said it would never make money. You know, I'm sure Minecraft is the same way. I'm sure people were like, yeah, no, it's kind of cool. I mean. I don't think that there were a lot of discussions about it that were similar because it wasn't trying to be built inside of a public publisher ecosystem. But even like something like Katamari, like I mean, why did people like that? It wasn't a billion dollar business, you know, it's like, you know, it sold a million units, but it sold a million units with no marketing and it didn't make any sense to most people. It was like badly translated and kind of buggy sometimes, but it was just so cool. A million of something is a lot, Yeah. you know? Um, so I think... The answer is, and from an industry perspective, is that it isn't something that we think we want to invest in as an industry. Um, and so it's at the realm of art games, which means it's in certain budgets, it's in certain distribution channels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the larger answer, I think, is that it's not that it's hard to do, it's that it's hard to do it and be justified doing it with the money that you get. With storytelling, then, like, where do you see the industry moving forward? And 
Where do you see it going forward, realistically? Where do you want it to go? Hmm. Well, I think this is really relevant to the thing I just said. So we, we have an opportunity right now because the barrier for entry is so low for making games for people to really explore that space as a hobby. And what I want to see is I want to see publishers and distributors taking up that mantle and taking games that are built out of love um, for the medium and pushing them forward a little bit, you know, just a little bit, not a lot. I'm not talking about even, you know, $20 million budgets. I'm talking $5 million budgets, $1 million budgets. I want to see publishers earmark certain amount of money for what will make the medium healthy. It's kind of like if you raise cattle in a big, you know, cattle farm, <laughs> spending a little money investigating the humane way to do it. Because in the long run, if you don't, and you end up where we are now, you realize that a lot of people don't want to eat that beef. Because you didn't do the work, and somebody else did, your business crumbles. And I think you can't expect the world to always want the giant open world with the monsters that you kill. Like or the, you know, five Marines going into this particular conflict and then killing everybody. Like, not everybody's always going to want that. Especially not every year. And, and certainly not forever, you know. If you look at the kinds of games we played 10 years ago, really a lot, like the games that were the most popular, it was racing games and sports games and platformers, right? Those were the big sellers. The Nintendos of the world were doing amazing, right? Everybody wanted to play Jack and Dexter, you know? It was okay to play games that were kind of kiddish and like fun, you know? And now we've moved into this place where everything has this kind of grim, you know, outcast sort of character that's really aggressive and looks like he might stab you or someone else. And that just, it, it's going to get dated, you know? So what I want is I want us to just start, you know, investing in the future a little bit, not a lot, I don't, I don't expect it to be like a, I'm a baller because I make games about love and emotion <laughs> and connecting and processing trauma. Like, that's, that's not what I expect. But it would be really awesome if people stepped up. And I think there's a hole there. I think there's a vacuum there. Um, traditionally, it's always been very much the case that these games get made by individuals. And what you're seeing is crowdfunding stepping up. You're seeing, you know, Kickstarter and Fig happening now. And I think... I would love for that to continue to become a way in which people can fund and that the people with money can support those things. They can put a little bit of their own money into individual campaigns like, okay, I'm a big publisher. I'm going to set aside $30 million this year and I'm going to use it to seed Kickstarters that I think are good. I'm just going to make that environment healthy, you know, because that seems like a good idea. We're going to pick the ones that are winning. Just go and say, hey, here's another million bucks publish it on our platform or whatever it is. Here's another $500,000, publish it on our platform. I think making those processes really concrete and engaging in them openly would be really awesome. What do you think is gonna happen? I don't know what's gonna happen. There's no way to know. And actually, you know, wishing for things is also stupid because you can't control the future. So what I'm trying to do is to be the kind of person that would get invested in by someone like that. I'm trying to be the change that I want to see because I don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's likely that Phenomena will never ship anything and will go out of business. And in a year from now, I'll be working at Google <laughs> because it's really hard to make independent games and keep them funded and get them out the door. Like, it was hard on Journey. It's going to be hard on Luna. It'll be hard on everything that we make. 
Um, that's what's likely because that's the percentages, you know. But do I know that's going to happen? No way, man. I mean, do I know that I'm going to succeed? No way. Do I know that the games are going to be great? No way. But I might as well try. You know, that's, that's the goal to just maintain. I was, <laughs> I was at the beach yesterday when I bought this painting. <laughs> it says, don't fuck with me, I'm a goddess. <laughs> From this guy, his, um, his, his art label is Funky Pussy, and he's like been on the beach forever. Like I, He's been there since well before I moved to Venice and moved away. And um, there's another guy down there who does surreal art. He's also been down there forever. And we were talking to him, and uh, he said, you know, it's, it's a struggle. And I said, yeah, is it? He said, yeah, you know what? He's like, I got to get up here. I got to be here at four in the morning to be at the spot because it's a public spot. I got to set up my booth here. And he's like, occasionally someone will show up on the beach, thinks they want my spot. They'll come an hour before me and then I'll just come an hour before them. And then they'll come an hour before me. And he said, at one point last year, there was somebody here who was sleeping overnight trying to keep my spot. Just kept showing up. You want to keep doing that? And I was like, wow, that's crazy. And he said, you know, you just got to enjoy it, man. It's like, it's a struggle, man. And he was like, you just have to enjoy the ride. You have to, you have to enjoy the process of trying to figure it out, you know? And that's hard to do. I mean, it is hard to experience learning, which is pain, and enjoy that. Like, that's definitely not easy. But um, the alternative is to just be resigned, you know? Oh, the industry is just going to collapse under its own weight. And indie apocalypse, I'll never make any money. And I should just give up and curl into a ball and just go teach my classes at school and never try. And, you know, and that's just, I mean, again, that's like, I'm not a ranter, but I'm also not resigned. I'm not going to give up. I'm a lover. I love being in love. I love being in love with games. I love being in love with the games I make and the people that make them, you know, and the fans, hopefully, that we will reach. You know, that's... I could be a heartbroken lover, but I'll still be a lover. So, Robin, you almost have a PhD in AI. <laughs> That's right. How do, you, how do you see AI being used in the future when it comes to storytelling? I think we're actually in a really interesting place with um, narrative and presence and VR. So one of the things, the many things I do, is um, I've agreed to sort of collaborate with Oculus Story Studio on a short film slash interactive thing. And we've been, you know, that, that team has been developing stuff. They've done two things now. Um, one is called Lost and the other is called Henry, and they're small sort of short experiences for the VR headset. And um, at Oculus Connect, I was talking with um, Edward, who runs that studio, about story and narrative and the ways in which we experience acting and um, agency in VR. And I think um, if you're familiar with Sleep No More, which was uh, an interactive sort of Hamlet-esque narrative that took place in a giant building in uh, New York City. <laughs> like in, I think it was in Manhattan. It's still going. Is it still going? Yeah. I went to see it two years ago now uh, with a friend of mine, some friends of mine from Portland. Um, super really amazing experience where you go into this place and you get a mask and then you walk around in it and there's a narrative unfolding all around you and all the floors of the building and you kind of get to wander and experience that narrative and you see different scenes blank where there's no actors in them and then then suddenly people will show up and do a scene there and then they'll move on and it's improv all around you with the audience being just this sort of experiential perspective on the set sets in the building. And I think it's really 
cool idea to think about VR for that. Um, what if you had an AI that was managing a story in that kind of a space and was putting things in and out in front of you, um, developing the narrative of the locations? So one of the many things that I am working on is a concept about... Trying to think of how to talk about it because it's so it's like in the very beginning of my mind sort of as a story but you know there's a thing that happens between people sometimes where they're so in love with each other that they destroy each other or they're like so close that it's painful so they can't be near each other you know um it happens a lot when you're young and you don't know how to regulate your emotions but it also happens like when people are married they meet people outside of their marriage and then you know they're in love but they can't be, you know, or uh, cultures, you know, like you're traveling and you meet someone on the trip. Maybe they're not even from the culture where you are, but you meet them and you travel alongside them and you fool around and it's great. But then at the end of the trip, it's like, it's not reality, right? Um, I'm really obsessed with this idea that there's something like a closeness that's so intense, whether it's a closeness between people or a closeness between um, a person and an idea, like that you're discovering something, you're on the edge of discovering this huge secret, like maybe you're going to figure out like the one unified system for physics. And like, as you get closer and closer to it, it just becomes this overwhelming responsibility that you couldn't even finish the work because it would just be too much. I think when you look at genius and people who are really, really almost like magician level genius, there's a lot of this. Um, and it's really interesting to me to think about building a story that is procedural, um, the way that journey I want a journey to be, um, that has these composed worlds that you go through, but that is about this larger thing and where the threads of that narrative are managed by the machine so that it's really like almost like an oracle. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And I have a whole pitch for it and, like, you know, what it would be like. And if you're listening and you want to give me five million bucks, <laughs> call me. <laughs> but, um, but really, like, I think that AI can be used to compose scenarios for contemplation. Um, not as in, like, a Zen meditation thing, because blah. But, like, yeah, there'll be a bunch of those. But that's actually really gameful, you know. And unlike most people, I don't believe that this idea can be stolen because it's in my head. <laughs> it could be, it could be like, actually, Tale of, Tale of Tales is doing a really cool VR contemplation thing with, like, idols. That's really neat. It's up on Kickstarter right now um, called uh, Cathedral in the Clouds. And I love that idea. And it's sort of similar to some of the things I've been thinking about for creating procedural stories. But it's not, um, it's not the same, you know. So I, I think that's where we can get something really interesting out of it is where the AI and the presence connect and you are through your very actions walking through the space or moving through the space or looking or whatever it is you're doing, you're creating a reality around yourself. I think that'd be really rad. I want to hear about Luna and how often like the business side of your job conflict with your creative side since you came up with Luna's entire thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a long, slow simmer uh, when it comes to ideas. So I started thinking about the ideas in Luna 
you know, years ago, um, and they've just been percolating up through my consciousness. And um, I actually wrote the narrative for Luna while I was on the road traveling around doing the award shows uh, when Journey was in the awards circuit. So I wasn't working anymore. I had been at Glitch for a very short period of time, and then I, I moved on and was just kind of going around accepting awards and talking to people and stuff. And um, in that time, I, I was really trying to just cram data into my head that was similar to what I wanted to create. So I read through all of the Grimm's fairy tales and Hans Christian Andersen and the Thousand and One Nights and all these things. I just, I meticulously noted in ancient, you know, Swedish folktales or whatever, like the enemy, the, the crux of the story, you know, the solution, the magical elements. Like I, I just made these tables and charts and like all this stuff. And then it just came to me in a dream. You know, it was like it just appeared in my head one morning and I woke up like I was in, I was at the BAFTAs in the UK and I wrote down the whole story. Like, this is what it's going to be about. And now I don't have to worry about that. Like, it's just done. Being the CEO of Phenomena means that I have to do fundraising. Um, it means I have to do press and PR, which is, you know, this would be considered something like that, although it's mostly just talking with you guys. Um, and I also have to do events. Um, and I have to manage people and worry. Uh, mostly, that's what I do is I worry. Yeah. Um, and that is incredibly draining. Like you cannot be creative when you're starved. Um, so what I like to do is I like to make white space for myself and my life, um, by doing things like gardening and hiking. I just got a dog, <laughs> which I can take for walks on the beach. You know, um, I've been teaching in Santa Cruz, which has been incredibly fulfilling, um, because it gives me permission to step away from all the problems in my life uh, when it comes to worrying about the business and to focus on what design is and what I want to communicate in any design. And then almost always after teaching, I have inspiration. It's really great. So I cope with the business needs of the business by having people that I work with that are really amazing and who help me, but also by giving myself permission sometimes to just not think about anything. You know, I, I definitely probably work more than most people, you know, when it comes to just like the sheer number of emails I answer. I'm the kind of person that will do in like a Skype with someone from high school. You know, they'll write me and be like, I have a class project and I want to talk to you about your job. And I'm like, okay, young Latina girl, I'm going to spend a half an hour talking to you. And I do that. Um, I'm getting to the point now where probably I should say no more often, but I always really struggle with that because I think that, you know, giving back is important. And almost always, like even this trip, you know, this was kind of a last minute trip. I wasn't really planning on coming down to Indicade. And then I got asked to speak on this panel, speaking on the panel, being here, talking to everybody has been so awesome. I always end up learning more about the games I'm making and what I want to do with the company, the more out there I am. And uh, I have to give myself permission to do that. So if you wrote me an email and I haven't written you back, it's not because I don't love you. It's because I'm trying to be excellent at the things I do. And I'm also writing my students back. But, you know, that's the way it is. I think it, it's, about, um, it's about understanding what the commander's intent is, what needs to happen today. Would you prefer not to be the CEO when you're working on Luna? Yes, I would much prefer to have someone else be the CEO of Phenomena. Um, and my dream has been to meet someone who 
has our values, who shares them, who, um, who is motivated and experienced, subtle in the ways that they need to be, but firm, who cares enough to make heartfelt decisions, not always the, you know, the more mercenary business decisions that one might need to make, but who I trust complicitly, just like Im Im implicitly, um, who I trust completely. That person would be amazing for me um, because they would, they would come in and do the things I do for the group of people that we work with out of love, you know, totally and completely. And then I could just be a creative director. But, you know, I think it's kind of a fantasy. I was just talking to someone about this today who was thinking about doing a startup, and they said the first hire they wanted to make was a, a biz dev person that would do all the work. And I was like, yeah, that doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't happen. Like, you can always have help, and there are a lot of people out there that will help you. But probably no one can do what you do the way you do it. And so you need to be either comfortable with having someone else do it the way they do it, or you have to do it yourself. And when I started my company, a lot of people told me that. Get ready to, not, to do a lot of not design. <laughs> Get ready to do a lot of not thinking because you're going to be hustling, you know. At the same time, like the hustle is part of it, you know. I'm learning a lot. I'm a way better CEO this year than I was last year or the year before. I'm still probably totally shit at it. <laughs> but I'm better. I'm You're not out of better. business yet. I'm not out of business yet. Goddamn, knock on wood. <laughs> also related to this, now that you're in a more creative position, would you prefer to do that more and focus less on producing or do you still have interest I see in that? them as the same. I mean, and really, I mean, really, the honest answer is being the CEO of a company is being the designer and producer of the company. Being the creator, creative director of the game in a small team like mine is being the designer and producer of the game. Um, and you can't really separate design and production, in my opinion, when you're on a small team. In a larger team, you can. Like if the phenomenon was 100 people, then I would definitely say, yeah, I want to do design or production, but I don't want to do both. I definitely don't want to be bus doing business development while I also do those things. But on a tiny team, um, they are so closely related. A friend of mine just said to me that like, on a small team, when you add a person, they become a gravity well. And it's so possible for the narrative of the company to kind of go into that gravity well in a way that you didn't expect. Every voice you add changes the flow of all the ideas and the decision-making process is just impacted immensely by every voice that you add. And so I think um, containing those voices in one or two people you know, like the lead engineer is also the person that does like most of the graphics programming and the sound guy is also doing the composition and, you know, the designer is also tuning most of the puzzles. Like you get these synergies, you know, quote unquote, between roles. I don't know that I would ever want to just be a designer because now I see how important it is. This vision holding what I want to go back to a place where I was just the EP of things. Yeah, I think I could do that. I mean, It'd be nice because I wouldn't have to worry about where the paychecks were coming from and I could just focus on making everyone super effective. But I kind of see that as the super version of my job now. Like, I want to be the CEO of a successful game <laughs> startup where I have an amazing team of people in the C-suite who are managing the business, who are bringing the questions to me that need to be asked, who are saying the things that they really want to say without fear of reprisal or failure. And... I can give people the platform to succeed on. That's what I want. And, you know, I've thought about it. Like, how, does you, how do you get that? Like, the one way you get it with a startup is you get it by basically 
making a game people like enough to keep going. But more than just keep going. Like you make a game that's like, you know, like Bastion, you know, it's successful, you know, yeah. or Transistor. Like Amir Rao is the best CEO ever. <laughs> He's really great. Um, I think that that's great to do it that way. The other way is to get investment, you know, for somebody to come to Phenomena and say, we believe in your mission. We believe, we believe games should be diverse. We believe that games should, um, should represent the spectrum of experiences and that we need to do creative research in this area and we want your company to do it. And we're going to invest in that company. Not for, you know, 10x or 50x or 100x investment, but, you know, for 2x or 3x. We're going to make a sustainable long-term investment in your company. Here's, you know, 10 million bucks or whatever it is. Um, and for that, we want 40% of your company or 20% of your company, or we just want you to succeed and we want to give it to you for free. I mean, that would never happen, but, you know, there are, there are those dreams. There's those daydreams you know, when you're walking your dog. Um, but those are the ways you do it. You either take an investment and share that responsibility with a, a partner or you are successful and then you build that vision from the ground up, you know. And right now we're doing the latter and maybe at some point we'll do the former. It's really hard to say. But um, I want to be the CEO of that company, you know. That's why I'm doing it. I want to get there. I do not want to be the CEO of a company that does a lot of for-hire work and is on a treadmill. I do not want to be the CEO of a company that makes games with narratives that are recycled from all the other games we've ever made. That's a very good business, but it's not the business I want to be in. And on that note, I think we're going to ask our last question. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Is it that time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Through the magic of editing, this, this podcast has become one hour and 30 minutes long. Maybe. Maybe. Or it might be over two. We are, I'm not going to say how long we are recording right now. <laughs> What are you playing right now? And like, what's inspiring you now? Does that have to be a current game, but yeah. So I've been playing a lot of board games with my students. Um, I bought a Netrunner set, which I've been looking at kind of wistfully. <laughs> I'm supposed to get some lessons next week. Um, I, uh, I really, really have been looking at the board games in my collection that are touchstones for teaching. And so um, one of them is called Blueprints. It's a really small game where you build things with dice. Really, really fun. It's really easy to play once you get to know it, and it has a lot of nuances, and it's a really fun family game, but it can be played with people of all kinds of expertises. Um, Love Letter, which is also really elegant. And um, Modern Art, which is a Canizia game where you uh, create an, an economic system bidding for art. Um, those three games have been the most recent things that I've played. Uh, and Tichu, which is a Chinese card game, it's like kind of like a trick-taking game. I've been playing a lot of trick-taking games and looking at bet games and trick-taking games as part of my discussion with my students about games in which there's a shared consequence or shared information. And Set, which I think is one of the best shared information games of all time. Just really elegant. Again, not that hard to pick up can be played with people from all walks of life and all ages, but it's just a really good game. So um, digital games, I mean, I've been playing some some of those games on my phone. The last game I played all the way through uh, was Hohokam. What did yeah. you think? I thought it was really beautiful. Spacey, like, you know, it's exploratory. It's, it's open. Um, it's the kind of game I think that should get made just because, you know. Um, and I just think Ricky and Dick are great people. Yeah. <laughs> I love Honey Slug. Um, I just think that it's really great. I was really happy that they put it out on PlayStation Plus so more people would get to see it and just yeah. get exposed to games like that. Yeah, I think that it's important, again, to just continue to, to push the boundaries. Yeah. 
and of course, I mean, honestly, the games at Indiecade, I mean, they're all great, you know, so, you know, everything at Indiecade that was in the showcase this year, I think was a really amazing game. Um, Akira actually did a really cool game, which is like a LARP about dealing with racial injustice. And I think that these kinds of games are really inspiring me. In fact, Experimental Gameplay Workshop will be coming up at GDC very soon. So we're going to start getting ready for it to put the call out in November. And then, um, and then we'll be looking at all those games, hopefully, and a bunch of other ones uh, to show at GDC in our two, it's like two to five hour session, <laughs> much like this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you have an experimental game out there and you think you'd be, you'd be uh, interested in submitting it, you know, go to experimentalgameplay.com and find it, or org, actually. And find find our find our call in November. Yeah. And then, where can people find you on the internet? www.phenomena.com. F-U-N-O-M-E-N-A. And on Twitter at phenomena. And on YouTube, we have a YouTube channel where you can check out all of our videos, uh, including interviews with me and Kata talking about Watam and some beautiful um, footage from our first teaser trailer for Luna. And also. Feel free to let Robin know that you are willing to invest millions of dollars into <laughs> yeah. phenomena. That's right. Especially you female entrepreneurs out there. I want to make a really powerful, important game company that is on, runs on woman power. <laughs> We're going to be here for the start of that, thanks to this podcast. Yeah, right? I hope so. But I'm Nick Folkman. I'm on Twitter at TwinMade Films. I'm Max. I'm Max Folk Max, and the podcast is Script Lock Cast. And thank you so much, Robin. Thanks. I'm actually at Hunnicky, so that's why I should say on Twitter. That's me, me. We will put that in the show notes. All right. Thanks. <laughs>